By its very definition, popular music is fleeting. Rarely is it composed with an eye toward standing the test of time. Where still does it actually achieve that distinction? And that's what makes Paul McCartney's career so legendary. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly half a century since four lads from Liverpool first landed on our shores and changed everything overnight. Gershwin Prize is, um, it's kind of unbelievable for me, really. It's uh, because having admired um, that music, the, the Gershwin Brothers music, from as, as far back as I can remember, the idea that I would get the prize is stunning, really. My dad and mom would have loved it. My dad particularly, because he was a musician. And the Gershwin era was his era. I think probably a lot of my love for music was just listening to him in the background, you know, just lying on the carpet, just listening to him play piano. I mean, I've done a lot of things in my career, but never this. You just said to me as a kid in Liverpool, listen to my dad, you know, play stuff or listen to the radio. And if you said to me, yeah, one day you will be in the Library of Congress and you will get the Gershwin Prize, you know, I would have laughed. I definitely wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. Where's the president? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, that's too close. Oh, no, that is close. That's close. Right? White to their eyes. <laughs> what was that? Shoot. Hey, dude. Don't make it bad Take a sad song And make it better I just love music And it really doesn't matter what style of music it is You know, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that Because I'm not blinkered You know, it can be a fantastic Tchaikovsky piece Or it can be Fred Astaire Or it can be Django Reinhardt Or it can be Elvis uh, you know, it can be the Stones, it can be the Beatles. Here we are, welcome to the White House. We're gonna have some fun tonight. We're gonna stop, we're gonna stroll, we're gonna rock, we're gonna roll. Stay tuned. Yeah, I've been to the Kremlin, I've been to Buckingham Palace. I've been around, <laughs> but to go to the White House is something I've never done. And I've been showing off. You know, I've been telling the, the mums at the school, guess where I'm going? 
I'm gonna play for the prayers. And they'll go, ah, no, it's, it's a biggie. the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to a presidential episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Of course, I'm your host, Sam Wiles. And remember, this is Wide Screen Radio. This is Wide Screen Radio. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, my fellow Americans, and or non-Americans, we are continuing with our trek across Americana as we explore another titanic momentous occasion from Paul's career that happened to take place in the United States of America. Last week, we covered McCartney's performance at the Super Bowl halftime show with Ranking the Beatles. Go and check that out if you haven't already. And a long-ass while back, we covered Wings Over America with Paul Sally. Go and check out that episode if you haven't already. But today, we are going to be talking about a show, a performance, an award ceremony that is bigger than both of the two previously listed. Yes, everyone, we're doing an episode on Paul McCartney's concert at the White House. Or, as it's more formally known, the 2010 Gershwin Award Concert. Now, I am no biographer of the Gershwins or their accomplishments or anything like that, but I know, based on their reputation and the reputations of other recipients of this award, that it really is an honour, even for someone as notable as Paul McCartney, whose own website cites it as the most prestigious American award for popular music. Though we are not here today just to discuss another shiny piece of metal on Macca's shelf. No, the main reason this award show is so famous is that it features a full-on, fully produced, well-mixed concert featuring Paul McCartney, as well as an utterly mind-blowing lineup of friends, well-wishers and superfans who cover a bunch of his tunes. As you can imagine, the venue being The White House is just awesome in terms of its visuals, the acoustics, the atmosphere, the ambiance, the import of it all. You know, it's a spectacular show. It really is. Spoiler alert, Paul is great. The guests are great. There is much fun to be had by all. Of course, I'm not going to be doing this alone. Once again, I'm going to be joined by a fantabulous guest this week, one Mr. Jamie Osborne, who contacted me about this episode a while back as he wanted to get out there onto the podcasting scene, as it were, to make his debut on this wonderful format well in advance of the release of a certain Beatle book he is working on, the details of which you will hear about shortly and in much detail, also links down below. I had a blast having Jamie on the show. We really did vibe it out together and had a lot of laughs. I also had a great chuckle during the edit Do make sure you go out and check out his blog, go out and check out his website, which has loads of his content, but most notably the Alphabeticals blog, where, as you may have guessed, 
He goes through every Beatles track letter by letter in excruciating detail and with his own humorous personal twist. It's a bloody good Beatles read. All of the links, like I say, are down below. Make sure you send him some Paul or Nothing love, everyone. Anyway, I can't wait to bring him on, but first we must settle the matter of the... Housekeeping! Right, let's start off with the news, and what do we have this time around? Well, the big one, first of all, the Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set thingy-ma-bob has been announced. I could go into full detail now, but me and Jamie literally break down the whole thing from top to bottom, so stay tuned for that shortly. But yeah, there is a whole lot of shit you can pre-order before the October 15th release, and... I'll let you all know right here at the top of the show that I have indeed gone ahead and withdrawn some of those wonderful Patreon funds gifted to me by my wonderful Patreon family, and I've pre-ordered myself the 5LP plus the book edition of the album. I can't wait to hear all those Glyn John editions. I can't wait to hear all of the bonus tracks, even if it's not what some people exactly wanted, but oh my god, the box and the book and all this, oh my gosh, yeah. Absolutely can't wait for it, folks. Uh, I'm, I'm also looking forward to making a totally cringeworthy unboxing video as well, so look forward to that. Pressing on, Giles Martin has come out and spoken about the future of Beatles anniversary releases. Of course, these box sets started with the excellent Sgt. Pepper re-release back in the March of 2017, and whilst people aren't exactly foaming at the mouth for the earlier Beatlemania re-releases in this kind of fashion, because I'm not even sure if there's much there to add. There still has been a lot of buzz and hubbub over whether the likes of albums such as Rubber Soul and Revolver, two more sonically complex albums which do have a lot of bonus contents, and whether they will get similar box sets. Speaking on the subject, Giles said, The software is getting a lot better. I'm constantly looking at how we would approach it if we were to ever remix Revolver or Rubber Soul, early albums, which a lot of people want me to do. That's a good example of how do we do that? How do we make sure that John or Paul's vocal isn't just in the right-hand speaker, but also make sure that his guitar doesn't follow him if I put it in the center? On Taxman, the guitar, the bass, and the drums are all on one track. That's why the record is basically on the left-hand side, and then there's a shaker on the right-hand side of the centre. So yeah, to break that down, folks, the reason we haven't gotten these albums already is that the technology simply hasn't caught up with us yet. Technology that would allow us to break up and separate a single channel comprised of multiple instruments, you know, getting them and splitting them into separate channels. We can't do that yet. We can do little versions of it, little tricks, little workarounds, but it's not quite there. So, as soon as that happens, they'll announce it, and I'll let you know here. But don't hold your breath. In other news, Paul has gone ahead and revealed the full list of 154 songs that he will be covering in the new upcoming lyric-slash-autobiography book, which comes out this November, later in the year. Now, Fortunately for you folks, I won't be reading out all of these 154 songs, but I will just point out a couple that did stand out to me. I'm not going to say why either, but I just want to leave these with you. I mean, you know, I'll leave it up to your imaginations. Songs McCartney has written about in this book will include Average Person, Check My Machine, Distractions, 
The Note You Never Wrote, The Other Me, Pretty Little Head, Single Pigeon, and Temporary Secretary. And look, folks, upon hearing this whole list of songs, I was and wasn't surprised by what I saw. Like, certain ones were a genuine joy to see, and the hype is there, but a lot of it does just look like it's going to be rehashes of various Beatle Bible and Paul McCartney project articles that we've all read before, quotes that we've already interpreted and reinterpreted and heard slightly different versions of already. I'm interested to see what, if any, new information he brings on some of these older classic songs. Who knows? It could be revelatory. I'm still a little bit sceptical, but of course I'll still have to get the book, obviously, and find out for myself. Though, what I will say is, Paul better go into more detail on the McCartney 2 songs in this book than he did on the 321 documentary series with Rick Rubin. Please, Paul, I need more in-depth, detailed McCartney 2 anecdotes, okay? Moving on, we've had another instalment of Paul's Q&A segment on his website, aka You Gave Me The Answer, still a great title. It was a brief one this time, which makes sense, Paul's been a busy guy lately, and this time they went ahead and asked him about his favourite album artwork. Now, of course, the staff know that they should never ask Paul this question, and fuck me, did he ever give the most politically inoffensive McCartney-esque answer ever. Predictably, he went for either Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or The White Album as iconic staples of the Beatles' visual canon, which he also had a heavy hand in the creation of. Then, he went and did what he always does, aka complimenting whatever the latest product is, and so he heaped praise upon the cover of McCartney 3 by Ed Rusher and said that that was currently his favourite. Shocking edge of your seat content as always. In some totally depressing news, as I'm sure you've all heard, the world lost Charlie Watts, the drummer to the Rolling Stones. You know, he's one of the all-time greats, one of the most iconic drummers ever. So many of the Stone songs, success, lend themselves to that great rhythm that Watts was able to lay down. He was also one of the original Stones, so I'm sure the loss has been even greater to the band. Uh, of course, Paul reached out on his Instagram page and did a fitting tribute, it was very, it was very touching, calling him a rock for the Rolling Stones, as well as how he was a lovely guy and how sad the loss is for his family, of course. He also mentioned uh, knowing he was ill, but not that ill, that was... You know, on a side note, quite interesting, I thought. But yeah, rest in peace, Charlie Watts. Terrible loss, really sad. And, you know, we're only going to experience more and more of these as, as the years go on, I'm afraid, folks. But hey, it's only rock and roll. And finally, in some lighter news, folks, we do have something pertaining to the podcast itself. I know I've mentioned this at least in one upcoming episode of Mac Air in your attic. Maybe I'm, I even mentioned it on the ranking, the one of the ranking the Beatles episodes, but I did want to give it a proper shout out on the show in this housekeeping segment. Brace yourselves, people. We've actually been quoted in a book. Yes, apparently something I have said on this podcast has been worthy of being repeated 
in a book titled Listening to What the Man Sang, The Casual Fan's Guide to Appreciating Paul McCartney. It's by an up-and-coming writer named David Stiberski or Stiberski. He has kindly sent me an advanced PDF copy of the book, and so I was able to find the quote directly. This is for a section on the song My Love, and it reads as thus. As articulated so well by podcaster Sam Wiles, the problem with my love isn't that it's a silly love song, it's that it is a dorky love song. (laughs) Wow. Big time, baby. This is so cool, isn't it? Um, This is amazing, right? My ego has swollen to a gargantuan size, and I can only thank the author, David Stiberski, a million times over. Like This is such an honour. Recently, Dr. Duncan Driver quoted something I said on an episode of something about the Beatles. But this is in print now, folks. This is forever. You know, this is great. Oh, my gosh. I am so touched. Also in the same book, on the next page or in the next song, there is a reference to a quote Ken Womack made. And that quote is actually taken from the episode we did on Paul or Nothing, the Venus and Mars episode, like four years ago so that's pretty crazy too we're official now folks we are one of the intelligentsia at least as far as this book is concerned anyway thanks again to david i'm sure we'll hear from him in the future but now that is the end of the news and now we're going to move on to the emails or email should i say yes we do indeed have a quick email today from one of our top tier patrons mr b who is actually the latest guest on Macca in Your Attic, where we actually do get to the bottom, amongst other things, of how his name is actually pronounced. So do keep your eye out for that in future also, everyone. Anyway, he refers to that episode here when he writes, When we were talking off-air after the recording of Macca in Your Attic, I said I was going to a record store and that I will email you about what I get. So, I got a new CD of new and memory almost full, a cassette of Press to Play, two Elvis Costello and the Attractions 45s, Accidents Will Happen, and Allison. Additionally, I also grabbed a Goodnight Tonight 45 single, as well as a Seaside Woman 45 single. And, if you remember, I said that I wanted the Germany release of Off the Ground, the complete works, that has all the B-sides and other songs. I finally found a good price for it, and got it. Anyway, thank you, as always, Mr. B. (laughs) Of course, Mr. B, thank you, as always, for the correspondence, and thank you for plugging Macca in your attic. Maybe if I say the name enough times, people will actually go and check it out, but... I've just got to say about this collection of wonderful physical format finds you managed to bag yourself, um, picks or it didn't happen, especially the off the ground, the complete work CD collection. Like I definitely want to see you with that CD. That sounds absolutely amazing. But yeah, thank you for getting back in touch and keeping me updated on your excellent collection. And now that the emails are out of the way, it's time to move on to the socials. Check us out on our Twitter page, which is at McCartney Pod for daily updates and all that jazz. 
For sister side material in the written form, check out our blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You get all sorts of cool bonus content on there. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, as I've gone on about already quite a bit today, YouTube now, our YouTube page, the Paul or Nothing YouTube page, is now the only place where you can get new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, which is our YouTube side series. It's visual. You actually get to see me, folks, rather than just hear me. You know, you, you actually get to see the proof of how hairy I apparently am. But yeah, Macca in Your Attic, if you don't know, I am going to stop going through the format soon, I swear. But just for now, in case you don't know, Macca in Your Attic is an excuse for me to get a wonderful guest on to talk about McCartney and Beatle memorabilia. And then at the end of the episode, they show me their junk i.e. five awesome, cool, valuable, sentimental or rare items from their own Macca or Beetle collections. And then we just have a look at it and go, oh, wow, that's cool. And if that's something that might tickle your fancy, check it out on our YouTube page, simply by typing in Paul or nothing or Macca in your attic. Now, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then maybe consider leaving us a like or a thumbs up or a cute little comment on whatever platform you are using. It really helps us out in the algorithms. Please and thank you in that regard. But if you want to help out the show directly, more consistently and financially perhaps, uh, check out our Patreon page. Become a member of our Patreon family. As I'm sure you all know by now, folks, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month. But it is not without its perks. You do get your money's worth. Not only do you get early access to Paul or Nothing by two days, you get Macca in your attic early access by seven days, you get access to exclusive Patreon bonus episodes, you get access to scripts and notes that I use for the show, you get raw audio from episodes past from the vaults, and most importantly, you get access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. Yes, pretty much everything I do now on the show is on Zoom, it is recorded straight away, and sometimes weeks, even months before the episode comes out, I will just upload it to YouTube, make it private, and put it on the Patreon page. And, you know, for example, the off-the-ground episode. Sam, where the fuck is that episode? Well, I've actually talked about the songs themselves with Ken Michaels. I just need to do the part one or the background and stuff like that. But if you want to hear what me and Ken Michaels had to say about off-the-ground, for example, you know, a recording we did well over a month ago now, check out the Patreon page. It's there. Also, I just want to point out quickly that uh, yes, I did use the Patreon funds to get that Let It Be 5LP plus the book box set. Thank you for that, folks. But I've also gone ahead and picked up a new lacy hard drive for the show. Uh, the old hard drive I had for my old Mac didn't work for my new Mac, so I thought I'd pick up this one. It's got the, you know, the USB 3 lightning drive or whatever, but it's got so much fucking memory, and I've just put every episode of the show on. I've put every recording I've still got. I've put every raw and edited episode of Macca in your attic, and it, oh my god, it's just made my computer run so much quicker and smoother. Yeah, thank you all for that, folks. Of course, you know, a hard drive hardly seems 
that important or fancy when compared to say the let it be box set that I've bought or even the mic that I'm talking into now which you guys also picked up for me as well but it is always appreciated it's crazy you know the fact that I have so much support from you people already is it's just so heartwarming um it, I always struggle to put it into words really this, this is one of the few parts of the show I don't script as you can probably tell but yeah thank you so much to my wonderful Patreon family people including Andy Cochran Richard Campbell Kim Christopher Newman Mrs P Broderick Harper Moti Reba Robert Shuley Christian Perry Richard Driver Chris Atkinson Richard Binnington Mr B Teresa Brader Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Thank you, everyone. Yes, we're nearly done. But just before we begin, one little piece of editing. There's a rock that I tried to think of in this episode. Uh, a black, shiny, sharp rock. And in this episode, I call it Onyx, I believe. Uh, Onyx is a black and white mineral gem kind of thing, also one of the original 151 Pokemon, but it is not what I was thinking of, I was thinking of Obsidian. And with that out of the way folks, it's time to get on to today's episode. One, two, three, let's go. And now folks, it's time for me to bring on today's guest, and he really is someone I envy because he's not only been able to upload quality work to his blog consistently and regularly, but he's also finished two screenplays and on top of it all has, well, he's writing a Beatle book. One of those real, it, it's a milestone. It really is. He is the creator of the Alpha Beatles brand blog, that kind of thing. <laughs> Everyone, please welcome Mr. Jamie Osborne. Jamie, how you doing, my friend? I'm very well, thank you, Sam. How are you? No, I am wonderful. I am. I'm enjoying the classic Paul or nothing Marmite coffee to start my day oh, off. Mate, that that is a mug. That is Ooh. a mug. I'm no, I'm I'm the mug here. I really am. <laughs> and um, let me just say, I uh, I've been deep diving a lot of the Alphabeticals blog. I've been I've been going through it every every now and then, but I've really did a deep dive over the past couple of days, and I've really enjoyed your piece on. The, uh, the, the when Homer Simpson killed football, I thought that was. A, <laughs> I thought it, like, a great uh, in, inflammatory title. It got me clicking, and then I had to read why is this and the the reason as to why it is is so deep in the article. You have you have to read the whole thing. It was you have to keep going. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was a bit of an ang- angry bile spout about um, how football re- used to, you know replaced religion for the working man and then suddenly everyone became priced out of it um everyone bought it because of the simpsons and now everyone's stuck in a horrible prison of having to pay about 100 pound a month to watch your, your local team play football it's crazy uh, yeah. no uh there's there i've definitely got more football questions late 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 okay. you know being <laughs> being the obvious alpha male sportsman that i am um just just to let you know i've also started watching mad men season one quite recently as oh, well mate. oh it's so good it's so good. I'm so I'm so happy Mad Men was in my life during the, the lockdowns because I, I must have gone through it at nearly twice during the first and second lockdown. It's, really? it's my comfort TV. Yeah, it's my comfort TV. I've I've, I've rewatched it several times, I think. It's, I'm now at the stage where I can just dip into a, an episode here and there knowing what I'm going to find. It's just it's like a it's a novel on screen really. I just think it's one of the great shows 
No, um, ju- uh, just just to let people know, uh, you did an article on, on, on uh, talking about Mad Men and masculinity. That, that, that was a great read as well. Um, Sopranos is probably my comfort food in that regard, the one that I will re-watch over and over again, yeah. may, maybe The Wire. But whenever I go through Mad Men, I have to kind of pause every 10 minutes and just go, I'm never going to be that beautiful. I'm never going to be as beautiful no, as <laughs> It's a catalogue of beautiful people doing yeah. horrible things. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great watch for that reason alone. Obviously, um, January Jones is uh, is a big part of why I like the show. Um, but yeah. the, the, the worse the people are, the more attractive they seem. I don't know, it's like an inverse universe of fairness, isn't it? Yeah, but but like it's got that classic kind of uh, fake hot girl Jennifer Aniston syndrome where like Peggy, the girl who's poised as like the not-it girl, is like still more beautiful, beautiful. Than, than anyone I'll ever meet in my, in my entire so life. Beautiful, exactly, yeah. No, I like, I like the way that um, it's, it's really smart show. And if you dive into it, then there's loads of really interesting Matthew uh, Wiener interviews on, on YouTube where he's happily, he's happy to talk about himself for several hours at a time Excellent. Um, and how wonderful he is. And of course, he's one of the main writers on Sopranos as well, isn't he? Of course. So, you know, Thank you brought up the fact I've written a few screenplays, and I had that was my main reason trying to become a writer was to was to write for TV. Um, and it's a great comfort in the fact that someone as good as him could have written the first episode of Mad Men, and then it laid in the drawer for seven years. And even though he was a chief writer on Sopranos, still no one wanted to touch his silly show about an ad man in the sixties. Um, oh. So it just goes to show sometimes people can be very wrong about very good things. <laughs> well, I remember when I was when I was a wee lad, and I remember bemoaning the fact that AMC took a lot of the budget from Breaking Bad to give it to Mad Men. Mm. And now that I've finished Breaking Bad and now I'm starting Mad Men, I'm like, eh, I'm kind of, I'm glad it went, it 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 went where it did, you know, because all it would have done for Breaking Bad, given them more money, would be, oh, Walter White has built a mech suit out of meth, and, <laughs> and he's gonna take on the Albuquerque Police Department with a minigun, you know. Didn't didn't it's funny, need I think that. I read- I read something about um, the first series of Mad Men where there was another 60s show being made, and I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, but they took all the good wardrobe. So they took all the good suits and outfits and dresses and everything. So all they had left was the very extra smalls and extra large. So around Don Draper, there were lots of very small extras or very, very large ones because they didn't have the uniforms to fit normal, regular-sized people. I love that. <laughs> It'd be weird to think of people bigger than Don Draper in the scene as well. Uh, he's a he's a yeah he's no, a, it's not Ryan. He's a he's a Bruce Wayne looking motherfucker. That, that guy. Um, he is, yeah, annoying. <laughs> just 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 one random little thing about the blog before I get into proper stuff. Um, I was glad to see that you weren't impressed with women and wives from McCartney Three as well. I was very happy to read that. Yeah, it was. Um, I got a lot of grief for that because I think there's a lot of love for that song. Um, I just felt it really quite. I found it very weak to be. It's grown on me a little bit, I have to say. Mm. I went Same. through a, a bit of a binge, a bit of a binge of listening to that record. I was so happy to hear, and with Egypt Station as well, two consecutively good albums from mm-hmm. from Paul. And he's enjoying a really nice Indian little summer at the moment, where his reputation's really good. He's kind of universally liked. He's gone through a massive renaissance, hasn't he? And the last two albums were genuinely good albums to listen to, and I've. I haven't listened to Egypt Station a lot recently, but um, McCartney 3 gets pulled out every now and again still, and I still quite enjoy it. But Women and Wives have grown on me a little bit, I have to say. Now, I always like to begin with the most British question ever. Where are you calling from, and what's the weather like? First time caller, long time listener. Um, I am in, I'm in Huntingdon, which is in between. I always tell people it's near Cambridge, but it's 
edging closer to Peterborough, really, but in the middle there. <laughs> and it is... I've been wearing shorts a lot recently, but I've pulled my trousers on today. Um, so that tells you it's, it's pretty cold. It feels a bit October-ish here. Not raining, but threatening to. How about you? Um, I'm I'm calling from uh, Glum, Birmingham, and I'm currently wearing some Superman pyjama bottoms. So keep, keeping it pretty pretty <laughs> casual here, folks. Um, I also should mention, in the Mahusiv mix-up with the Ranking the Beatles podcast, where I took the notes for this episode when we were meant to be doing the Super Bowl episode, I still thought I was going to ha- have a yank for this episode and we were going to talk about the, oh, really? import- the importance of America <laughs> and the significance of the White House and culture. And You're in trouble. You're in the, trouble, Ian. There probably are White Houses in Peterborough, I I imagine, so, you know, on a, a nice country lane how, somewhere. But Houses of all colours. You yeah. don't discriminate against us. <laughs> <laughs> These are white houses, Sam. Yeah. No. Um... <laughs> no I, I listened to your episode on the on the um, on the Super Bowl, and at the beginning, oh no, we've got someone else to do the, uh, the the White House one, and I nearly got bumped by the ranking the Beatles team before I'd even begun. So thanks for that. <laughs> if they could have winged it. I don't know what would have happened if, you know, if they could have gone, oh, yeah, we know that, like the back of our hands, be like, right, let's do this. Let's go right in. Speaking of White Houses, we'll go back to uh, a, a controversial Beatles time, the uh, Beatles White Power era. Get back. It's the uh, era we're all talking about now. And yeah. uh, I was I was listening to the Glyn Johns one and a, a couple of those controversial uh, Beatles tunes from that era when I was reading through your blog and I decided to come up with a question to kind of set the uh, set the mood for everyone. If you had a time machine, would you rather go back to the Beatles rooftop gig or Arsenal at Anfield in '89? You know, for years and years, um, I, I, I claimed to be at Anfield '89. I don't know why. As, as a child, whenever anyone asked about it, oh yeah, I was there because I've got some season ticket um, holders in my family, and it's a plausible lie. But I watched it live on TV, like lots of people do. I was about ten years old. And my defining memory of that day is my dad picking me up after the game. And I had a brand new Arsenal kit on and everything, 10-year-old, slightly chubby me. Uh, went back to his house and he had, animals tend to like me, but he had a cat that used to stalk me around the house. And I walked in all happy and Arsenal won this, this game and his cat mauled me and ripped my Arsenal shirt to pieces and bloodied <laughs> my face and everything. So it's slightly poisoned memory now. Um, so definitely rooftop all the, all the uh. way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, there's, there's, there's just there's going to be some footage in the new Peter Jackson documentary of just some kid being mauled by. A, I've got a feeling. <laughs> oh my god, by an errant beast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, uh, I don't think it'd be too difficult for me to choose to choose between that one. Maybe like Beatles rooftop gig, see the dinosaurs. I don't know if I could if I could, if I could choose choose between that. To be one. fair though, if you had a time machine, you could probably do both. And who's going to stop you? If you've got a time machine, though, would you be able to get all of the new 50th anniversary editions of Let It Be, though? You know, you, you are going to need all the resources in the world. And let- I'll tell you what I'd do. I would, I would flip forward 20 years and pick them all up cheap and then come uh, back. That's probably what I would do. <laughs> let's have a look at what we've got then, because, folks, uh, this is the most recent chat I've had since the announcement came out a couple of days ago. We've got the one vinyl edition, one CD, Five vinyl with a book, five CD with a Blu-ray, so six CDs and a book, two CD deluxe edition, then there's the book separately. Which one are you going to get? Well, 
I'm a bit of a I try and get the deluxe ones where I can, but mm-hmm. I have to I didn't I didn't get the Abbey Road one. I got the Pepper One, the White Album one. I, I didn't get the Abbey Road one simply because I, I wasn't blown away by the new mix, to be honest. I really thought the other the original was so good and I like that so much. I probably will I probably end up getting it at some point, uh, the deluxe one, but I, I'm a bit it's a bit puny, isn't it, the offering. I think they could have done so much more with it, with all the with all the tapes that were available, I, they're being a bit naughty about it, aren't they? They're going to come out with a Peter Jackson deluxe DV, uh, Blu-ray of the concert and uh, a, an accompanying CD with a lot of the um, sessions on it, I think. I suspect that might happen. So I might wait it out. I don't know. What about you? Well, there's a part of me that's wondering whether Disney Plus just wants the rooftop gig to be on Disney Plus, and that's the only way mm-hmm. you can you can watch it in full. That would be quite sly of them. I asked on Twitter this morning if, if anything was missing, and user Pavement Oyster said, anything missing, hardly anything's included, which... Uh, <laughs> wink, wink, yeah. Yeah. That, that, thought, the, e, the, EP, the EP was an odd choice, wasn't it? The four-track EP. We were clamouring for that, it. We were clamouring for it. We were, yeah. <laughs> where's, where's my EP? I think, you know, if that comes out on a on a sort of single-disc single, single disc vinyl, I might, I might plump for that, because that might be a nice little thing to have, but... Yeah, it's an odd choice considering all the all the sessions and all the tapes and all the run throughs and versions of things that are available out there on on bootleg and things. It seems quite thin. There's no Susie Parker. That was the first thing I noticed. Someone else uh, put it in in the comments as well. Where Su- Susie's parlor or Susie Parker? Neither of them are on this album, and that was like literally one of the ones I was looking forward to. Of yeah. course, they're not going to put the Glyn Johns mixes on separate vinyls that you can buy them separately. No. You've got to buy the new Giles Martin mix, even though the entire point of the album is that it's like unmixed and like not. Like, like, <laughs> it's it's like when they did it with the McCartney album. It's like you can't remix and remaster the McCartney album. The, the, you've got to listen to the worst copy you can find. Scratch up your yeah, own the copy. scratchiest, worst, lo-fi copy, and that's the real experience, isn't it? It's like, yeah, here's a, here's a perfect Lynn John's mix. Well, this is John Lennon's attempt to bin off the whole legacy of the Beatles. What's the point of having a fancy, take all the frills off it, all the edges off it? Well, isn't that nice? No, yeah. no not for me. They're definitely not, not going to include the theory that he messed up the baseline on purpose in this lovely little book that I'm, uh, that I'm looking at here. Oh, my gosh. Have they corrected his baseline? They've deflubbed the notes. There's Giles Martin sitting there on a cheeky six-string Fender bass. Yeah, you never, you never know. So CD one, new stereo mix, Giles Martin. CD two, get back Apple sessions, various alternate takes. CD three, get back rehearsals, Apple Jam. CD four, get back LP nineteen sixty nine, Glyn Johns mix. CD five, let it be EP two, Glyn Johns mixes from nineteen seventy, and new mixes of the single version of Let It Be and Don't Let Me Down. That's a C. How much can you fit on a CD these days? Like, can you fit like a hundred songs on a CD? Like, why are there multiple? Oh, this is getting a bit a bit annoying now. This is uh, and then a Blu-ray <laughs> Dolby Atmos mix five. See, they've really pushed the five point one to the bottom of the like uh, back in the White Album Abbey Road thing. It was like this, this is the big selling point yeah. of this selling point. Yeah, all the, the fancy five point one. Does anyone actually listen to that? Well, um, do you not mean everyone doesn't have a perfect surround sound system? At- at home that the that the butler installed you know it's a bit suspect there yeah i think the um the, the reception has been a um, steady decrease hasn't it it's been in in decline ever since the the first 
remix session, uh, the, the Pepper sessions came out. I think mm-hmm. the, the, it peaked at the White Album. I think there was so much value on there and the Easter the sessions and everything else. I think, and that's a genuinely great box that I still pull out and listen to the the other discs of. I think the, the Abbey Road one was a bit thin as well. There were a few grumbles about that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, I think they they really either missed an opportunity or they're looking to really cash in on multiple multiple versions of the sessions you can buy with the Peter Jackson film coming out. So yeah. bit of a Beatles boom. And he, you know, even the most bloodthirsty Beatles fanatics on, on Twitter seem to be griping and moaning a little bit about it. It was kind of set up for failure, though, because there is just so yeah. much with the Let It Be stuff. And they were never going to include it all because... What about in the next 50 years for the 100th anniversary box set, you know? What else are they going to release? Exactly. And I think I think there's something that definitely takes a hold or, or, or fake whatever it is with the Letter B sessions. I don't think anyone's ever going to be satisfied with the project. You can polish it and tidy it up and clean it up and whatever you like. It is what it is, which is a, a bit of a shit show, isn't it, really? Um, and a bit of a hodgepodge. And as much as I like the album, I play it a lot. It is what it, you have to take it in its own sort of little context of it was never perfect, it was never going to be, and any kind of tidying up or any new releases or versions of the project are just going to continue its, its reputation of here's a bunch of songs at the end of the Beatles career. <laughs> no, uh, no, let it be naked included, which I thought was quite interesting as well. That's definitely uh, a note from the other two, well, other, other three Beatles estates. Yeah, this is not, that's not official. That's not official. This, this is Paul's. This is Paul's. Yeah. Hashtag release the Nagra reels. I think we. I think we could get a kind exactly. of Snyder cut kind of hype going going for that. Mate. <laughs> I'll be well up for that. Yeah, that's what we. That's what we want, really, isn't it? No. It, uh, if Twitter was in the in the sixties, uh, in like sixty nine, there would be release the Glyn Johns cut a hundred percent. How do you feel about the Glyn Johns? Um, I love it. I, I love Save the Last Dance for Me and like all the little random, you know, just in, 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 incorrect ways they play the instruments and the vocals are clearly shambles, isn't it? It's a big, I love it. I love it. Big, messy, punky shambles, which I think is would have been maybe John's vision of, of the Beatles perhaps more if, if Paul hadn't been part of the band. I think there would have been a lot more of that ramshackle, Rolling Stones y kind of vibe about it. As someone who can't play an instrument very well at all, though, and who likes to project themselves onto whatever media they consume, I was like, uh, you know, <laughs> I can play. I can play that. I could be there being bad with them. That could be fun, you know. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's quite. A, it's a welcoming Beatles, isn't it? The ramshackle, dirty, messy Beatles. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that kind of fireside band on the run kind of kind of kind of feel, you know. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, enough of that riffraff. Let's get on and talk about you a little bit more. And we're going to start from the beginning. Are you the kind of person that likes to alphabetize a record collection? Oh, God, no. I don't look after any of my things in that way. Um, it drives my wife crazy. I have records on the floor. I've got a six-year-old daughter running around the house, treading on them and all sorts of things. No, I don't alphabetize anything at all. Um, I know I'm a completely disorganized human being. Oh, gosh. <laughs> As the host of Mackie in your attic, the host of vinyl <laughs> on the floor is 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 very worrying. But um, w- b- before I have uh, and go into cardiac arrest, let's talk about the Alphabeticals blog. You've started that back in October 2019. Now, um, how did that come about? Yeah. So I've really, I've, my ambition was to be a, a screenwriter, um, and have written. I've written quite maybe nine, ten complete screenplays. And then I, I partnered up with a, a friend of mine, um, John Eleanor, and we, we got commissioned to do a, a sketch show. We'd started writing some comedy and doing some stand-up and stuff like that. And um, we 
out of the blue uh, from a local TV station, very um, Alan Partridge, we got commissioned to, to create a sketch show, which we did, and it was great fun. And I thought, you know, it, once that project ended, it took a couple of years to sort of create it. Um, I really wondered about what I was going to do next. And I thought, you know, I hadn't ever really considered writing about the Beatles, um, even though they consume me and not have done since I was about five, like so many people. I, I think I wrote a piece for uh, the Teetles book um, by Hugh Spink and got some nice feedback on that and, and really enjoyed it as well. And it was sort of something I did as a bit of fun. And the, the feedback, I got quite a lot of message about, oh, this is great, you're going to write some more stuff. And it took me by surprise because as someone that's been writing in silence for so long to get any kind of feedback was, this is good, I like that. Um, and of course, you know, everyone's thirsty for, for Beatles content. There's so much available. So I just used it as writing practice, really. I thought, what could I just do to take a, a, a few hours out here and there and write a little bit just to keep my, my writing up? Um, and the, the idea for that came along really I haven't there are lots of versions of that kind of format out there song by song thing obviously the revolutioning in the head stuff and some of those views are quite outdated now I wonder if um, Ian McDonald was still still with us whether he'd still hold some of those views or not the brilliant writer that he was so I just thought I could attack it from a kind of 21st century perspective really is all of it as good as is said you know, challenging some of the views that are out there and trying to put my own little spin on it really and then after sort of five or six things went out, I started to, I got approached by a publisher, which blew my little mind after you know, trying to get an agent and, and sending, it totally blew my mind and said, do you, do you want to finish this as a book? And I thought, That's, yes, definitely. Write about the Beatles as a kind of sideline job. Yes, please. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of went to meet him um, for a, a, a proper meeting about publishing in London. I felt like a real human writer at that point. And it didn't take much to get me to agree to do anything he wanted. <laughs> so I agreed to I agree <laughs> so I agreed to do it and um I spent the next sort of four or five months writing them. Um and as I started taking it a bit more seriously, going back and looking at what I'd already written on the blog and trying to fill them out and make it into a, a bookie kind of form. And then really started adding it up. You know, there's three hundred plus songs and we're talking probably two years of full time writing to get that anywhere near to a decent level. And then each song was really it wasn't simply became not so much about a revisit of songs as stories around the songs that the titles of the songs might inspire untold things from a sort of twenty first perspective twenty first century perspective so uh, and there's you know there's so much happening now in the twenty first century about the beatles and it's it's changed from most of the books that you read about them so untold stories and little facts and bits and pieces not trying to re rewrite what's been written by much better writers trying to put my own little spin on it and then suddenly each song was three four. 5,000 words sometimes and yeah, thinking that. that plus that plus 300 songs plus you know we start to talk about half a million <laughs> words for a book which for a first time published writer A no it probably wouldn't get published and B no one would, would want to buy a tome like that that would probably cost 20 quid so I had to really sort of take stop and have to think about what I was doing um, which was gutting because I'd probably written about 70 80,000 words by that point um, and reconsider really what what is the book? And I sort of did it by reverse, really, rather than thinking about an idea and then going to publishers. I'd started writing something for fun and then I got approached and then just agreed to do anything. So now it's it's changed considerably. Mm -hmm. So now it's um, definitely a 21st century revisit of the Beatles, but not so much about each song um, because that's been done by, you know, musicologists and all sorts of things that I'm probably not qualified to do. And I'm the person that buys a Beatles book. And if I see mistakes or 
rehashing of other people's work, I immediately stop reading it, like so many people do, you know, because there's so many books mm. out there. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to some really interesting people like um, podcasters, bloggers, writers, local local Liverpool historians. I've got interviews lined up and stuff like that. Um, I've done some already. Um, and it's like the, 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 um, the, the girls that do the Beatles podcast, I've, the mind completely gone blank on their Another kind of mind? Uh, no, Daisy and Chloe, who do the All About the Girls. Oh, um, All About the Girls, the yeah. Pod, yeah. Um, so we've got an interview with them lined up in a, in, a, in a week or so because there's lots of perspectives that have been sort of aired, have been written out of history, really, which is at the beginning, the Beatles were all about the girls. You know, uh, mm. the, the girls they were friends with before they were famous um, and then the girls they associated with when they were. And of course, the fan base was majority girls. And now a large part of the, especially the online fandom, are, you know, people like you and I, really, who are sort of white guys that obsessively read and talk about the Beatles. But there are lots of other perspectives. There are girls and women that have been airbrushed out of the story a little bit. You know, why there's so much hate still on Yoko and, uh, and people like that, and how she's been treated differently to Linda, and the sort of Sort of similarities with um, Meghan Markle and, um, and and Kate and stuff like that, and how they're treated comparatively to mm-hmm. Linda and Yoke. All these different perspectives that I find quite interesting that I've, I think are unsaid or unwritten about at the moment. So it sort of morphed into that, really. But it's still an alphabetical story. From there's a beginning, a middle, and end to it. But there's a, a narr- slightly different narrative about it. So it's, it's really interesting to write alongside a full time job and all the rest of it. It's challenging, but. It's not going to be half a million words now, so hooray! <laughs> so, I mean, I, I read that in in your first blog article that uh, it's a 21st century post hashtag Me Too post millennial gaze, and I kind of yeah. thought, you know, that's what we're kind of doing here at Paul or Nothing, in a way, purely just because it's me doing it, you know, in that kind of Marxist sense. You are just your environment, I guess. And yeah. yeah. Without too much lofty philosophizing, though, I kind of do want you to just to give you a moment just to say. First and foremost, though, you are just a lover of the music, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I my mum had all the records when I was a kid, but I remember my first introduction to them was five years old when my older sister brought back a VHS of the 20th anniversary reissue of Help, the film. Wow. Um, and she introduced me to two things in, in, in around the same time. And one was Help, and I remember she put the, the video on, and I laughed and laughed and laughed. It wasn't about the music. I just found them so funny. And then uh, might have been a year later or something, she, she gave me the uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail to watch. Those two things blew my mind. I, I laughed until I cried and I obsessively watched the help video over and over again, not knowing why I was so attracted to these people. And then when I was a little bit older, maybe seven or eight, I started going through my mum's record collection and found help and playing that over and over again. And then, I sort of just, just went from the middle out and sort of just picked ones at random and started listening to them. So from five, I've just been completely consumed by the band and, and the music. You know, it, it, it's, it's silly, really. My, my, you know, it is an obsession. And I think mm-hmm. so many people get caught up into that. This weird, almost religiosity about them. It's, um, you know, I, I write about that in my, in my book, actually, how they've effectively replaced religion. It, it, it's, in, in a lot of people, in the fandom's world anyway, uh, the obsessiveness about it is completely unique. Outside, of, There's something like, you no know, football fandom is something similar, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, and Elvis, which is a different kind of thing, like a monolith of, of American culture. Mm-hmm. But there's something religious religious about the Beatles. And it's funny, actually, the, the, the religious historians called the period in which the Beatles were active 
the um, uh, what do they call it? This is like the big crisis of Christendom, which ranged from 1957 to 1975, which wow. also coincided with the years that John Lennon was most active. And there's all these strange parallels that they don't ever mention. There's white elephants in the room, which is the Beatles. Uh, they try and find all these other reasons why church great. attendance goes down. And, you know, they, they call it the 1963, the year that uh, a woman appeared naked at a literary festival. Um, as, the, as the decline of moral culture and religiosity and Christianity and all that. I'm thinking, the Beatles' first album came out that year. Isn't there some sort of strange parallels here? And, you know, I think... I'm, I'm consumed by the Beatles. I think about them all the time. Sometimes I venture out into their solo works and I love other music and other things and read other, about other things, but always brought back to them. You know, four friends, really. I'm sure everyone that comes on the podcast feels the same. I'm, I'm really thankful they exist because they've been a constant companion my whole life. The way we discuss the Beatles, I think, is <clears throat> quite interesting, especially in terms of, say, podcasting versus books, because I feel like the type of people who would go out and buy a Beatles book expecting to read a whole book are entirely different than maybe entire swathes of the fan base. And it's like, I feel like sometimes maybe I try to make this show more like a book and more structured like a book and use more quotes and have like a little bibliography at, at the end and stuff like that. And do you feel like you might sometimes want to not dumb it down, but maybe just try and feel the song a little bit more and not over-intellectualise the music? Yeah, I, I, when I was writing about A Day in the Life a few months ago, um, I was listening to Sgt Pepper again, and I find myself listening at that album rather than to it, because I'm, mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about it as I'm listening to it. So I sometimes trying to freshen it up a little bit um, is... It's just to put an album on and then potter around the house doing some bits and pieces and you find yourself singing along to it and enjoying it rather than, oh, tell me why it comes on next or whatever. Don't try not to think about that. And a, and a good way to trick my mind into thinking it new again, which I think is part of the whole repackaging of the Giles Martin remixes, is we're so familiar with these songs that any kind of new symbol in the top right-hand corner makes you, oh, this feels new again now. Great, I'm, I'm enjoying the Beatles again. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? Oh, that bass, that bass line, wow. Oh, I feel that again. Because you can become a bit, you know, anemic to it all, really, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But um, I like to put a CD... I, I bought a CD player um, in January for the first time in 10 years or something. I had all wow. my CDs in storage. I, I had used a Blu-ray player through the TV for CDs for so long. I, I spent a lot of time driving for an old job. So I had the, the Beatles... 2009 remaster box in the car all the time and that was on constant constant play but yeah so i bought a cd player and i just put a cd in and put it on random and that really freshened it up a little bit because the song order changes and you know what's coming next <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh oh wow so i sort of tricked my mind into doing that but yeah I can't yeah. know what the question was now <laughs> <laughs> shuffle on a cd is a little more uh uh, restrained than say creating your own playlist on Spotify these days because it's it's so tempting just 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 to go and just go in those same playlists and never listen to an album in order and that's what I like about vinyl you're forced to sit down shut up you can't have the TV on you have to listen to this album yeah um, no I, I bought a I bought a record player just to play my mum's old uh, Beatles records mm -hmm. I don't know how long ago it was ten years or something ago. And that, that was great fun. But I, I have made a few Spotify playlists and uh, I've, uh, I've created my own white album, which every every sucker does. <laughs> Although I like the full version better. Um, and 
uh, an alternative revolver which puts a couple of songs in a couple of songs out mm. and that, that does that does tricky yeah let me yeah. Um, see if i can find it no um, um I'll, I'll find it in a minute I did a version of of uh, Venus and Mars, uh, but I call it Penis and Bras. You know, that's on my Spotify there somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. A few songs in. Few oh, songs I, I love out. Venus and Mars. I love Venus and Mars. No, uh, I have to squeeze um, Lunchbox Odd Socks onto there somehow. Yeah, it, <laughs> it just needs to be on there somewhere. Maybe to get, well, what did I get rid of? Oh, yeah, and then I put Junior's Farm back uh, back on it as well. Uh, yeah, it, it deserves to be there. But I, I, it, I, that might be my favourite Wings album, actually, uh, Venus and Mars. I, it's just fun, and I, I don't know. It's so, yeah. it's so knowing. It's a, it's a McCartney knowing album. Like this is a this is a rock show sort of thing. But um, I just think it's great fun. I do like well, it. When I when I started the show, that would have been heresy to me. But as I've been going on, it's like. <laughs> No, but I like all the songs in order. You know, yeah. it's it's the band at their peak. They're, they're cool, you know, which yeah. is a, which is a rarity, and that's just so enjoyable. Just before we we move on to the topic at hand, um, something I always try to do on the show is blend in my own interests subliminally okay. through to my audience. You know, I always end up either talking about Lord of the Rings or Yu Gi Oh or Weird Al or something like that, something completely unrelated and. As we mentioned earlier, there are a couple of football references scattered throughout your work. Um, are there many opportunities for Beatles and footy fandoms to oversect outside of maybe chants? Well, for a little while, there was a few Beatles songs that were sung on uh, on the cop, weren't there, in the 60s? I think um, Hey Jude was a chant when Arsenal had Giroud up front, obviously. That worked nicely. <laughs> outside of people swearing at him, they'd sing the Hey Jude song at him. It's a straight, yeah, they run at my football and Beatle Twitter run at almost parallel. There's almost no crossover there, actually, come to think of it. That's funny. I do have some football fans, like the writer Nick Quantrill, who's become a, a good friend on, on Twitter. Mm. He's a he's a Hull fan and he writes for football fanzines and stuff like that. Um, he's also a really good crime writer. But there's almost no crossover. Is there any in yours? No, so for me, the the weird crossover I've noticed as I've gone through the fandom is uh, Beatles and Doctor Who. They're, they're, yeah, they're, right. Yeah, I can see that. It's yeah. almost a t- like you know the Venn diagram. It's almost just two circles <laughs> on top <laughs> of each other. Yeah, and I'm well, and one, I'm in that. Really, yeah, one really asks. They both really ask demand geekdom, don't they? I think you know there's such a, a almost a, a, a snobbery about about the Beatles that if you. I've seen, you know, someone ask a question and just people get absolutely jumped on about asking a question that, you know, most Beatles geeks would know. But there is a time when you don't know those things and the journey of discovery is so deep and, and immense, isn't it? I think, yeah, uh, I, 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 from one of my, I, I write for a few online magazines uh, and one of the editors, I was tweeting about the, the transfer window, which is going nuts at the moment. I must have exclusively tweeted about that for a couple of days because you shouted at me. Mm. You've been tweeting about football for 78 hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, never, the, never, the two never the twain shall meet, football and, and, and write to Twitter, apparently. I don't know why, but I, I heard that in Alan Partridge's voice then for some reason. You've been tweeting about football. <laughs> tweeting for 78 hours. <laughs> Lynn, take Very my long. phone off me, please. <laughs> 
What's going on about Benjamin Netanyahu? Yeah, exactly. Ian Allen, I voted on one of your Twitter polls. I thought he was right. (laughs) Oh, my God. It writes itself, folks. It writes writes itself. itself. (laughs) Alan Partridge interviewing McCartney. That would be fantastic as as well. We need to make that happen. We need to make that happen, actually, yeah. So, when did Linda lose the leg? Amazing. Yeah, oh my life. god so yeah uh me and my uh um Ameri- oh actually just just one thing that i was thinking of uh you're talking about uh different different perspectives throughout his, his, history and stuff and the fact that it was the girls at the start football when when people go crazy at a football gig where it's mostly young men it's hooliganism but when female fans go crazy and arguably more people end up hospitalized and having to be taken away it's not hooliganism, it's it's hysteria, you know? It's very yeah, it's, Victorian, that kind of mindset. Yeah, that sort of outpouring of um, pre-teen sexual angst at those early Beatles gigs. I think even, I think John Lennon said something about it, didn't he? That, or it might have been Paul, actually, come to think of it, that the, the men have the football going crazy at the football and, and the girls have that outpouring of, of passion or, and whatever it is, some mm-hmm. kind of release. At Beatles concerts, and there's no different. You know, you constantly ask about the hysteria. I think that's a really good shout, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a shame that maybe the young male Beatles fans didn't have like a modern rocker thing to get their aggression out. Like, you never hear stories of like no. Beatles and Stones fans getting chains and flick knives out and duking it out. <laughs> the Sharks and the, the Jets stuff. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think we, that's something. That's a musical we need to make happen. But my uh, my father-in-law was at the um he got dragged along to one of the finsbury park astoria shows um mm. christmas 64 i think it was wasn't it and with his older sister who's eight years older than him i don't know how old he would have been but six seven eight something like that mm-hmm. actually it put him off the beatles forever it was the scariest environment he'd ever been in um <laughs> girls just crying screaming going crazy pulling making himself bleed by you know doing all the all oh, crazy lunatic oh, stuff. No, you don't hear about that Clawing at the face. Oh my word! No, they're just just the yeah. It's an outpouring of something that hadn't really been touched on before. And I think yeah, he's he's um, anti he's anti Beatles to this day, thanks to that trauma. <laughs> I'm I'm just thinking of those you know those World War One and Two photos of German officers who have dueling scars like down their face that are really like dis, dis, disfiggering. Yeah, I'm was, just yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what 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 happened to you, Finsbury Park? Just like, <laughs> and permanently contorted. Three medals. So, yeah. <laughs> just tickets yeah, to each, each <laughs> of the shows. Uh, anyway, on Wednesday, the 10th of June, 2010, President Obama presented America's highest award for popular music, the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Songwriting, to Paul McCartney in the East Room of the White House. The prize itself commemorates George and Ira Gershwin, the legendary American songwriting team, whose extensive manuscript collections reside in the Library of Congress. The prize is awarded to musicians whose lifetime contributions in the field of popular songwriting exemplify the standard of excellence associated with the Gershwins. Now, at the risk of sounding like a complete philistine, had you ever heard of this award before, Paul? Never. No. Never. No. I think it was the second one, wasn't it? I think it was the... Who, uh, I did see third. my research. I didn't make... It was the third one, was it? Third okay. One. Who, who were the first two winners? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've got a list of okay. all the... So in 2007, we had Paul Simon. Then 2009, we had Stevie Wonder. Then 2010, Wonder, yeah. Paul. 
Next year, shaking it up, got Burke, Bacharach, and Harold David. Then Carol King, Billy Joel, Willie Nelson, Smokey Robinson, Tony, now retired Bennett, Gloria Estevan and Emilio Estevan, and Garth King of the Democratic Party, Brooks, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who has recently had to cancel some shows. I do, I do believe I got, I got, oh, really? Tagged, oh, really? Lovely. I got tagged in that. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think of an event like this? Is this a nice little excuse to honour someone with a, a token or is it just another cynical wing of the Democratic Party? Well, it's so weird watching it, isn't it? Uh, it was only 11 years ago and it feels like a historical document now of the, the tone of the session uh, of the concert itself. Everyone was so... If I was a right-wing lunatic, I'd be sitting there shaking my head <laughs> because... Everyone's so happy with Obama and everyone's so in awe of him. Even even Paul McCartney's in awe of the great um, Barack Obama. Yeah. It feels like it, it's almost like it's fiction, like it didn't ever happen. It's a bit of both, really, isn't it? I think why Paul needs to be honoured by, you know, another honour, yeah, chuck it in the pile. Um, I don't, you know, he, he, he claimed to have been really touched and moved by the whole thing. And maybe he was, it's hard to tell with him. But it seems like a bit of a love-in around Obama, doesn't it, really, um, in, in hindsight? Yeah, it definitely seems like, you know, Obama's the cool president, so he has this funky concert at the White House every, every, every year. Like, you know, Bill Clinton may have played sax, but you ain't seen nothing yet, you know? No, I half expected him to get up and play on the keyboards or something. And, no! And, 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 and do it. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't that have been cool? I, I was waiting for it. I know, it. I know it didn't happen, but it felt like it was leading up to something, like a, a duet um, between him and Paul or something. Maybe one of Stevie Wonder ones from, from Tug of War. That would have been quite funny. What's that you're doing? <laughs> I know. I can't, I can't do it, Obama. What, what's that you're doing? Yeah. Oh, my God. We'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, as Jerry Seinfeld says in his stand-up set, no award can really top the achievements Paul has ever done. But like Paul said, you know, it was about meeting and receiving it from Obama more than anything. Yeah, receiving it, this award is one thing, but receiving it from this president, like, yeah. the Lord has come down and bestowed upon me this amazing, this amazing gift. So it definitely it, it aligns with the, the politics of the time, which must have infuriated some people. And it's, it was like a, it was almost like a, a bit of a comfort blanket, happy dream to sort of watch it because things weren't all bad. I know there was a, on the backdrop of a horrible earthquake in Haiti, wasn't it? Mm. That was the disaster they were talking about. You know, and he said, uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that. But he said, um, but there are billions of us knowing you're going to pull this off, Obama. Like you're going to perform some kind of miracle and heal the world. And everyone was just, yeah, and, you know, how far we've come or, or what, what happened in the next 10 years is, yeah, there it is. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just picturing, like, Lennon's still having trouble with, Im with Im immigration and Paul to, to, like, get back at him, get, like, takes an award from Nixon. Like, I would, I would like to thank Paul for this, this momentous occasion. And, and, and Nixon and Elvis, yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not Elvis Costello instead, yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> and then rather than Jerry Seinfeld, it's like George Carlin or something, you know. <laughs> here are what all the <laughs> I was going to say, here are all the words that Paul McCartney can't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you think? Of, uh, maybe, do you want? If you want to do this in chronological order, absolutely fine. Oh, but, oh, oh, oh we, we, we're going to get to Jerry. We're going to, we're going to get to Jerry. Well, okay, fine. Um, just a, a, a couple of uh, awards Paul has won, just to put it into context. He's got an Oscar, 
eight Brit Awards, 18 Grammy Awards, 22 Enemy Awards, doctorates from the universities of Yale uh, and Sussex. He's been knighted. He's a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, which does sound like Ali G came up with that one. The most excellent order of the British <laughs> Empire. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, in May of 2001 in Peru, he received the Grand Cross of the Order of the Sun and there for his environmental protection work and the Medal of Honor from the Library of Peru. And on the 8th of September in 2012, he was awarded the Legion of Honor, which makes him sound like he served in the French Foreign the League. Legion of yeah, Honor. Love yeah, it. Love yeah. it. Oh, my God. These are all Legion of Honor. That's a Paul McCartney album title. Order of the Sun. That is a Paul McCartney <laughs> B-side if I ever heard oh, one. Oh, wait. Oh, my gosh. Superb. But, yeah. It's, it's, it's strange, these honorary doctorates and things um, people are given, isn't it? It's, um, it's all an excuse really for a piss-up. It's just everyone wants to meet Paul it, McCartney and have a party. That's what it is. It, it has to be. because I don't Honorary doctorate in quantum mechanics, Paul McCartney. Um, it, I don't understand what some, what some of these things are, but, you know, it gets to the point when what else can you bestow upon him? Do you know what I mean? He's, he's so decorated, isn't he, his, uh, his military career? There's nothing else to give him, really. Um, except, I think the biggest award he might be getting at the moment is just the renaissance in his reputation. Because yeah. he was a laughing stock for a long time. And it really upset me, that, because I think you know, he's one of those... I was worried that he'd be one of those celebrities, one of those touchstones of culture that would die and then everyone would come out an outpouring of grief when it was too late. But I think he's getting such a love in now that it makes me, it makes me happy. What I've noticed about, say, like, kind of post flaming pie up to new is that his reputation was never bad but it was inconsistent like worryingly inconsistent it was like yeah that. like because you'd have yeah. for every for every flaming pie and chaos and creation you'd have like a kind of a driving rain or a memory almost full that just didn't really do much for his rep but like new egypt and mccartney three it's so st- people like stability you know it's a basic psychological yeah. thing and he's just put out three consistent quality albums and it's so calming exactly <laughs> you know? that's exactly the right word it's like i've proud i've been proud of him which is you know he doesn't care what i think about him but i've been proud of him recently a bit like dylan as well he's, he's had a, a late flurry of good work consistently mm-hmm. good work um depending on how you feel about the the, the cover albums and stuff but I, I quite like them in a comforting cuddle kind of way Definitely, but it, yeah. I think that I think that's part of what it is. I think you know the, the Creeps Jubilee and stuff. He got such a, a kicking from non-believers about his. Oh, but it was terrible. Oh God, I, I don't yeah, want to cover it, it on this show. I don't. No, no, it was terrible, and I felt for him. And he he got a bit of luck in things like that. There's Live Aid. It all went wrong for him there as well, didn't it? And um, and when he pulls out the Hey Jude and stuff, I think people are a bit sick of mm-hmm. that Paul McCartney. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's nice to see him having a bit of bit of love at the moment. I mean, if he'd have done that Lady Madonna live phone thing 10 years ago, oh, he would have been eaten alive for it. Lady yeah. Madonna! Yeah. <laughs> like the Elton John, I'm still saying it. Oh, no. Um, oh, I think it's... Um, Char- it's Char- Charlie Dancer or something. Charlie Brooker does a really good joke where he's like, El- Elton can't say words anymore. <laughs> and it's like he actually doesn't say the words anymore. No, that piano performance was amazing. I must have watched it thirty times. Uh, <laughs> I'm well. going to watch it straight after this conversation. <laughs> uh, um, 
um, just before we get onto the set list itself, we should point out that there was a little get together, a little dinner show, pre-show thing at the Library of Congress on June the 1st. Long Long did a performance of an, another poor comp- competition called A Leaf that I'm going to hopefully try and find and put at the start of this episode. And then Paul did yesterday with the Loma, Loma Mar Quartet and a performance mm-hmm. of Blackbird as well, trying to get them in at the end of the episode as well. But yeah, I think we've established that this is all just a, an excuse for everyone to get together, pat themselves on the back, network, uh, have a have a few jelly deals. You know, it's all it's all very uh, hydra. I like the, I like the idea you know. of, a, of a barmer having some jelly deals and some cockles and whelks and stuff like that with white white vinegar and pepper. I love the thought of that. No, I'll keep that in mind. In my head, all kind of buffets are the same across across culture, like. <laughs> Like two thousand years ago in Indochina, they would have had little cocktail sausages and sausage rolls and stuff. And, you know, small e- cold quiches. Egyptians with a quiche. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Cheese and pineapple on a stick. Happy days. So we're going to start off with one of Paul's favourite songs to start off any performance since '79. This is "Got to Get You Into My Life." Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to the White House. I was alone, I took a right, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road, one many eye, could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, then I suddenly see you, ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? You didn't run, you didn't you know I wanted just to hold you Had you gone, you know in time We meet again cause I had told you You can tell immediately that Paul was very excited to say Welcome to the White House And you know, he's kind of asking that what's left to do But he's already conquered America itself So it is kind of cool that he's conquering this White House But do you think he's playing it a little bit too safe with this with this number here? Like, I know he's not going to give us any of his dance stuff, but I was a little bit uh, okay. Yeah, interesting. I think um, I'm I'm typically not a fan of cover versions of anything. I haven't listened to the reimagined McCartney three or anything yet, just because mm-hmm. I like my Beatles to sing my Beatles thing. Um, I think the funny about Paul at the White House is a, almost like a natural progression of the essay he wrote about the Queen for her coronation when he was 10 isn't there I think there's an element of Paul that wants to be patted on the head by the establishment and say what, what a good boy you are aren't, aren't you good we're proud of you Paul I think this is a natural progression of that so for him to be at the White House and being patted on the head by the, the, the President I think mm. is, is great but there's also a little subversive thing about him isn't there so that you know, I don't think it's true but then smoking a, a joint at Buckingham Palace and all the rest of it so that the, the get got to get into my life obviously is about is about his love affair with, with pop so I think um Okay. In singing this at the White House, I took us a little bit of an extension of that, you know, having a little joint at the Buckingham Palace, got to go into my life at the White House. I don't know, I'm reading too much into it probably, but hey, if, if this is the format for that, isn't it? So, That's yeah, it, it, is like a it. Safe, it is a safe opening number, um, but I, I, that's what I took it as, a little wink to Naughty Paul. Naughty Paul being patted on the head. 
See, the wink I really got here was that the, this is the wings arrangement of this track. This really isn't the modern way he does it. And to me, it was more of him going, you know, I'm not, I ain't going to be doing Spirits of Ancient Egypt here, folks. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I will let you know that I was indeed in a band called Wings, if you know where <laughs> to look. Yeah. Just going to say, first of all, the acoustics in the White House sound incredible. Like, it's a nice small room. It must be a nice, unique format for Paul, I guess, at this point as well. And it's nice that the big gig, especially of that year for him, isn't some Brazilian uh, field stadium where there's 177,000 people. It's, you know, the it's 1% not, of, the, of the 1%, you know? Yeah, no, well, it's the, the elite are there, aren't they? But it's a little bit like the American Cavern, I suppose. It's a very small yeah. room where you could be up close and see him without mauling people or lots of chin scratches around. So I think if it looks you know, like the, the bit at the beginning where he sort of comes on the stage and as I look at it, it probably stays because I'm sure he's done the sound check and everything. But he's like, where's the president going to sit? Right there. Well, me, he's going to be right in front of me. So he wants to sit in front of someone important sitting up like looking like that. I mean, I, I've, I've played, I, I'm in a sort of 50s, function band uh, mm. as well sort of part-time i'm much happier playing festivals and stuff than a room if my wife was just sat there looking at me like that i'd be nervous as all hell <laughs> doing it it's, it's just a, a group of quiet people sat there in, in sort of mm-hmm, is uh, yeah it must be quite intimidating but what a great little concert to be at it sounded great really didn't it and if anything goes wrong, Hogs Hill Mill will quickly get a drone strike just oh, God, straight, yeah. <laughs> straight on there. There were apple yeah. scruffs nearby, Obama. <laughs> Their blood is on your hands. A drone strike on Hogs Hill. Amazing, yeah. Not getting political. Sorry, with that. Uh, no. <laughs> I, did, I didn't start the drone strikes, folks. I just carried them on, okay? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, oh my God, that man's presence hangs over this whole gig as well, doesn't it? It's like, like I talk about pre-9-11 on this show a lot, especially when I talk to an older generation about, you know, back in the day, you could walk into a shop and buy a McCartney bootleg and a gun and walk on a plane with them, you know? But, like, this is so, like, oh, America, for a brief part, whether it was a PSYOP by the CIA and FBI, I don't know, but... The, the intelligentsia of America was slightly cool for a, a little while. For a little, for a little while, though, they had a bit they had a bit of jazz call about them, didn't they, for a, li- for a moment there. Yeah. And I was thinking, imagine this happening under the Trump administration. <laughs> Obviously, wouldn't they wouldn't be welcoming Paul in for a start. He'd sing um, Get Back for be, a start. Uh, <laughs> it'd be Get Back, yeah, right. It'd be Kid Rock or something like that, wouldn't it? And there'll be just a load of sort of that happening. But, yeah. It, it does hang heavy over it, the whole Trump thing, because it's just like that's right around the corner. I don't think anyone in that room would have expected what was about to happen, but it's a strange one. Just like just like Paul like, walks on stage and goes, don't forget about middle America. Woo. You know, uh, <laughs> the swing states are important, remember. But uh, yeah, it's funny. This is, this is a late stage. This is Paul just before he enters in, or maybe a little bit before, but he, he, into the elder statesman, grey hair, he looks it, great now. No, no, it's dyed hair here, folks. You can tell yeah, it's dyed. It, it's, it's it's not the best man. look. It's, no, it's not the best look. And I, I think he looks better now than he does at, at this concert. Yes. Uh, I think, you know, this is just before... You know, Grand dude, the, yeah. Sort of, yeah, with the shirt, fitted shirt rolled up and the grey hair and the Nehru jacket and everything. I think it's just the dying embers before that happens, isn't it? I think he looks his age here more than perhaps he does now, to be honest. Mm-hmm. 
but again, you know, it's I'm going to the White House. I want, I want, I want my hair dark. <laughs> oh, 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 my hair did. Oh, my hair did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And who can blame him? Also, Paul's voice just straight up. This whole gig sounds fantastic. And whenever I go back in time, any any amount of time on the show to any point, I always just look at the comments. People are like people are like Paul's voice is getting worse, and it's like it's been, it's been getting worse for apparently the last two hundred years now. If if these yeah. YouTube comments are to be believed, he sounds great here. He sounds great here. There's a couple of moments later on, um, especially when sat next to Stevie Wonder, whose talent hasn't diminished at all. No, he's no. just. His voice is amazing still, you know, and I think um, I, I like old Paul voice, especially on McCartney 3. I think it adds a real vulnerability to him that he perhaps previously would have hidden. Now he can't. I think it's all there. But it does sound good. It sounds strong all the way through it pretty much, apart from a couple of moments. Also, uh, we are going to have some classic symphonic orchestra from Wixie throughout this whole gig as well. I'd like to think that the White House could have splashed out and got an octet maybe especially for Elna Rigby later in the show but if yeah, you are gonna keyboardy, wasn't it? yeah if, if you are gonna have someone do the keyboards though Wix is your man he really is so the, the band are, are great all the way through it man I think um he's got yeah. such a killer band there he's the it's um Abe Wixie Brian, Brian, Brian Rusty and uh Brian Ray's bass is just amazing all the way oh. all the way through this gig yeah um, yeah he's great and just Abe's the king just always has been, always, always will. He's the king of the king of feel, isn't he? He's got such a great feel and a deft little soft touch, and he's obviously a powerhouse technician as well. And um, oh, love him. Great, great addition to our band. I also found out recently he's on a, an obscured Lady Gaga song that I quite like as well. I was just like, oh, he was the session Is musician he? for that. Of course he was. Like he's Abe, you know. He does stuff yeah, outside of Paul. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely one of one, one of them. And then for our second song, we have someone who needs at least another three podcasts about their discography. I'll probably do one one day that'll be lambasted for being out of touch. This is a little Stevie Wonder and his version of We Can Work It Out. actually because normally when I do these these notes like I've been I, it took me four hours to watch a one and a half hour Linda McCartney movie because I have to stop and write notes constantly but it was weird I watched this whole song the entire way through I, I, I did sat, I did yeah, as well uh, you know it's it, it would be an insult to pause it, it, it it's just such a badass performance isn't it oh, oh, not being a fan of cover versions of anything really especially if talking about you know, iconic artists like the Beatles if I'm going to listen to a Beatles song it'll be a I, I like, um, you know, Ray Charles um, does a couple of good cover versions of um, Eleanor Rigby and stuff, but this is my favourite Beatles cover version. I think we can work it out by Stevie Wonder. I think he's he's just, I'm not 
breaking any rules here by saying he's obviously a genius. And he, the older he gets, he just seems to his talent hasn't diminished at all. Sat next to Paul, I think this this version is great. But I, it was the bass by um, it was the bass playing that I loved always. It's so funky. It's a shame that Paul wasn't playing it, but um, it was great. Yeah, really great, great performance. Love the song. Uh, I mean, Stevie's never given a bad performance, you're right. Uh, and I love that he has the double combo of keyboard and synthesizer and he's switching between the two and then he pulls out a harmonica out of his pocket. <laughs> and like, I swear he had three arms at one point. I, I don't know how he was... Maybe he was playing one of the keys with his with his heavy dreads, you know? Like, uh... he's, he's the great harmonica player, though, isn't he, Stevie? I think so. Oh. We, we can suffer through some of John's playing and some of Dylan's playing and all the rest of it, but Stevie is the master of it. He can make he can make anything sound great on a harmonica. Really, it's a horrible little instrument, isn't it? <laughs> when I saw him live uh, in Hyde Park, where he did all of the songs in the Kia Life, uh, supported by Pharrell and Corinne Bailey, right, which was excellent. He did a harmonica solo, and then I went to go buy some drinks and a hot dog. And when I came back, he was still doing the harmonica. Still playing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and like, my dad was literally, he was like, I just want the album version, son. I just want, I want a, I want a clean 101 minutes, you know? And it was about three and a half hours. Like, you know that weird little synth he's got? That's almost like, it's almost like he's playing a, a mini piano without the top on it and all the strings are kind of yeah, exposed yeah. and he plays it like that. He played that. Uh, genuinely for 40 minutes it was a, just a an, an instrumental solo he was doing just ding, 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 ding. and it's, people were getting up leaving it was it was it was, it was quite clear and, yeah. it's and he's blind so he can't tell if, <laughs> if people get up and they're, and they're not listening anymore which i thought was like maybe that's why he's such an indulgent player <laughs> yeah because no no one no one dare tap him on the shoulder stevie stevie they've got they've gone yeah. mate they've gone yeah he's like, playing for two hours he, had, he he needs like a, a little braille representation of all the seat plans, and then he can like, and then they and then when, when they're in their seat, they're raised, and then when they leave, they go down. You know, <laughs> Sam, he's not deaf as well. He can tell if there's no one in the in the, in, 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 yeah. in the crowd. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, Stevie's band are excellent here, and they get to do a bit of a jam, which you're not really going to get with Paul's band. There was also. Um, and a slide whistle from Abe at one point, which I really enjoyed as well. You can also see Nancy really enjoying this performance. And I do like that they actually show Nancy in this. I feel I feel like she's yeah. not, not like she's persona non grata, but that she's a bit of, a, you know, like there's that Osborne child that's just not in the Osbournes, that fourth kid or something. It's like, she's not, yeah, yeah. she's never had a push. Do you, think they knew, do you think they knew she was there? Or maybe she was just sat in the room when the room started filling up and they just left, leave her. Leave Nancy. <laughs> the, the, no, like she was just there giving Paul his phone or something. And then, and then all the cameras started coming. It was, like, it was a bit of a farce scene. Like, oh, 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 I guess I'm here. <laughs> Who are you? Michelle. Oh, Paul does a song called Michelle. That's interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, definitely. On to the song that I know is going to be the highlight of this show that we're going to be talking about for an hour at least, obviously, is... Drive-by car by the Jonas Brothers.
Now, uh, to put things into context, folks, we have just had the Friends uh, reunion, and obviously they wouldn't ruin a reunion by putting in a really dated host and a really dated musical act. Oh, no way, it's James Corden and BTS. Oh, no, they've yeah, dated right, the yeah. whole thing. We're not, we're not going to... So, just get someone like a Johnny Carson type thing. You know, get Conan to host it and then get the Remembrance to do the music for it. There we go. You can play it for the next hundred years, sorted, but no. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of people Googling who the Jonas Brothers are um, watching that back in the future. And <laughs> rightly so, they're going to be consigned to history because that was hard work winning that performance. It really took a dive. It was very Disney, very showboy Disney. No, yeah, but compared, I mean, I know you haven't listened to it, but compared to, say, like Dominic Fike on the three imagined, uh, reimagined album, he's like a new up and comer. But clearly, the people at Capital and MPL, who are a lot more hip than Paul's marketing team was at this point, have gone, okay, we're going to pick someone young and cool, but he's going to be Instagram, Twitter, TikTok yeah. cool. It's not going to be someone that your mom will have seen on GMTV. Uh, that's like our daytime TV show over here, folks. But, you know, you won't see these, you know, someone on like The View or something like that. Whereas the Jonas Brothers, they are Disney. They are the most commercial establishment act at this point, I guess, really. You could have replaced it with Miley Cyrus, maybe, and it really wouldn't have made much of a difference. No, it's a bit like the, the, the Kanye thing, isn't it? When lots of American teenagers thought Kanye was given this old man his big break kind of thing. I think that's obviously <laughs> what they were they were hoping for here. It's the obviously it's the well, depending on your opinion on the guys, but it was the low point of the show. And yeah, um, it was it, the, vocally, performance-wise, the band were trudging through it a little bit. You know, it's an electric song, really, but it was a bit of a dire performance. Um, <laughs> and now they're left in kind of oblivion now, aren't they, the Jonas Brothers? So. There's two guitarists in the Jonas Brothers, but they still need Rusty and Brian on stage to play with them. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. Think, I don't think they even do the solo either. So it's like, why no, are you here? Why are you here? Well, I have to go back and actually check the chord progressions they're playing against the actual song to see if they are plugged in at all. It's, my, you know, it's one of those Richie Edwards in the Manic Street Preachers versions, wasn't it? It's like, he's got, give him a guitar, turn it right down, and then we'll send <laughs> Bradfield to sort it out. But yeah, it was... Um, I understand why they were there. Um, they probably didn't know who Paul was. Very nice, and it ended. <laughs> yeah, they probably thought he was called Dirk McQuigley or something like that. <laughs> exactly. I was, I was just thinking, and like I went through the like the Billboard of that year, and you you, you, you could have had Alicia Keys, you could have had Early Gaga, Katy Perry, Pink, Marley Soros. Like I said, you could have had Beyonce would have been great for this, but probably yeah. too ex too expensive. And sadly, this is prior to the Taylor Swift, Rihanna and Kanye West friendships, which uh, all would have worked as well. You know, Kanye coming on and doing Give Ireland Back to the Irish hip hop remix. <laughs> that would have been so cool. This would have uh, been one of the great McCartney shows if that would have happened. Yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, my God. Like... Q magazine would have lost it. They would have lost it. Uh, what is over? Who? Oh, what? Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. On to something else very cringeworthy, the Jerry Seinfeld stand-up set. Mr. President, First Lady, Sir Paul McCartney, other people. <laughs> Let me say just how honored I am to be part of this landmark event in this magnificent setting here in the East Room 
of the White House as Sir Paul McCartney receives the Gershwin Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Songwriting, or as I think we could have called it in this particular case, uh, duh. <laughs> I also have to say, if I may be completely honest, that I'm not that big on prizes. Uh, the problem being that the word prize is used to cover just too broad a range of things. Um, you knock over three milk bottles with a baseball, you get a prize. Uh, the water gun in the clown's mouth, you get a prize. Nobel has a prize. I think there's one of them around here somewhere. Somewhere. Cracker Jacks has a prize. Publishers Clearinghouse has cash and prizes, so it's a little all over the place. Uh, not to mention the fact that he's already a sir. A sir, and, I, I, and, and not an I'm sorry sir, there's no more compact cars available. Would you be interested in a midsize kind of sir? He's a real sir. When Paul McCartney steps up to the Enterprise counter and they go, yes sir, can I help you? They mean it. And when he returns that car and the attendant says, excuse me, sir, you left your Gershwin prize on the back seat, that's when you know you've really made it. You got the sir, you got the cash, you got the prizes. Sir Paul, you have written some of the most beautiful music ever heard by humans in this world. It's my favorite music that I've ever heard in my life. I love you for it. And yet, some of the lyrics and some of the songs, as they go by you, can make one unsure even concerned sometimes about what exactly is happening in this song. <laughs> Songs such as, I saw her standing there, and I quote, she was just 17, you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm not sure I do know what you mean, Sir Paul. I think I know what you mean. Getting better from Sergeant Pepper. Again, quoting, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Nice. <laughs> Same woman by any chance? I'm kidding, of course, and uh, I can because Paul and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the years. That's how I got this gig. And, uh, but what makes him the unparalleled artist that he is is that the world has also gotten to know him through his unforgettable music. Uh, we followed your life story. In the beginning, a young man who said, I want to hold your hand. All my loving. I feel fine. Please, please, me. <laughs> a little self-involved, what the hell? <laughs> You're in show business, good-looking guy, thin, why not? <laughs> then marriage and family, and it changed a little. Now it was about the long and winding road. <laughs> Oh my God, Penny Lane, just glad to be out of the house getting a haircut. <laughs> Fixing a hole where the rain gets in. These are husband lyrics, ladies and gentlemen. And it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong, I'm right. This is an argument. More husband songs followed like, get back, help. And of course, would you just let it be? But that's what marriage is. And it's a beautiful thing, marriage. It's two people, that's it. Trying to stay together without saying the words, I hate you. That is your goal. You never say those three words, you say other things. 
Things like, why is there never any scotch tape in this house? <laughs> Trying to tape something up down here. Scotch is I, tape is hate, house is you. But <laughs> it's an improvement. It's better to say, you know, no normal human being leaves a bathroom floor that wet than you're stubbing out my soul like a cigarette butt. You don't say, I could kill you right now. You say, you're so funny sometimes. And you feel better. And Sir Paul, you have made us all feel better for so many years with your incredible talent. Thank you. We love you. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, the stylings of one Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, what's up with Paul McCartney? Like, oh my God. Yeah, it's exactly what you'd expect. Are you are you a Seinfeld fan? Do you do you like the sitcom? So I'm, I am not a Seinfeld fan. Um, I am a Larry David fan, um, yeah. which is why I find it really frustrating that I've not been able to enjoy Seinfeld because Seinfeld is in it. You know, I've fallen off my chair laughing at Kirby Enthusiasm, but Seinfeld was, I had a couple of, uh, I grew up near an American base, an American um, army base. Uh, I went to school with a few American kids. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, or, or kids of American parentage, anyway. And they were all enormous Seinfeld fans. Um, and it was uh, it was on quite late at night, wasn't it, originally? Like 11.45 or 12.45 a.m. on Channel 4 back in the back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the, the loving that these, these two particular guys had for Seinfeld. And I try, I've tried it so many times over the years because it's so highly regarded. But I find watching Jerry Seinfeld is a little bit like being pushed down the stairs. Yeah. And it, it, it was almost an excruciating... It was a very odd stand-up routine he did here, wasn't it? It was... Um, he brought up domestic violence and uh, underage sex. And I was like, okay, right. Yeah, well, well, he does that wondering. He's like, let's have a look at Paul McCartney's lyrics. She was just 17 and you know what I mean? No, I don't know what you mean, Paul. Well... Jerry, hang on, sorry. Didn't you famously go out with a 16, 17-year-old <laughs> in the 90s? Rich, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at least at least the at least the boys were in their early 20s at the time. Yeah. Hey Obama, I guess what's hilarious? Domestic violence. Oh my bounce <laughs> back the bounce bounce, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the, a very it was a very odd little routine. And yeah. so it was very um um, man arguing with wife, I'm right, I'm wrong, and all the rest of it. I found um, extremely painful. Um, I'm, I'm friends with Paul, so this is how I got the gig. You know? And um, yeah, we could tell, we could tell. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. I mean, uh, calling the Gershwin Prize duh, that was quite funny, I thought. Calling Paul literally a sir, that stuff, that got a few titters out of me. But the whole time as well, in the way that you look at this and you think of Trump in the future. I'm just watching this thinking, oh my God, this is only four years away from the Jerry Seinfeld interview with Stella McCartney, where he takes the piss out of her in front of Paul and then Paul reacts quite badly. Have you have you not seen this? No, I haven't seen this. No. So, so like Jerry does a few jabs at Stella live on stage. And like at the end, Paul's like, well, uh, we used to be friends with the Seinfelds, but I don't think anymore. And then on stage, he turns, to, he turns to Jerry, looks at the face, and goes, "You grilled my daughter!" <laughs> like he's clearly not happy about it. We're going to play the clip right now. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Stel. We used to be friends with the Seinfelds, <laughs> but after tonight, I'm not so sure. You grilled my daughter. Yes, well, we were trying to uh, 
have a little fun. Yeah, That's why yeah. you hire a comedian, you don't... Yeah, but Jerry, it wasn't all fun. No, nothing ever is. <laughs> Honestly. And, you know, anyway. Well, um, yeah, it's... Amazing. I, I like Angry Paul because he always hides it behind the thumbs up, point, pointy fingers, gun fingers. Yeah. Um, but you can tell when he's really annoyed. I think he's, he's got a code, hasn't he, in public as um, God bless him. I think when um, it was at Q, the, uh, the producer, I know him as Q, I can't think of his real name now. What's his, uh, the... Hepworth? No, no, he's the... No, one. Q. The, the, fact, the really famous American songwriter, producer. Um, I can't think of his name. Uh, he said the, the Beatles were... Yeah, he said uh, in a recent interview, the Beatles were a bunch of no-playing rubbish, no-timekeeping mother Fs in the world. And he, you know, I think he was went off on a bit of a rant about the Beatles for some reason. Um, oh, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, yeah. yeah. When you said Q, I was thinking Mark Ellen and David Hepworth. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, Quincy, yeah, Quincy went off on a bit of a rant in a recent um, interview, and I think Paul was obviously harassed for a reply. And Paul just went, oh, Quincy, God bless him. Uh, and, something, <laughs> yeah, and that's his code for calling him a C next Tuesday, isn't it? So, oh, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, nice little way to break up the gig, I suppose. And we go into an artist who I was quite excited to see, actually, because the very first physical album that I bought that wasn't a Beatles album was Jack White's Blunderbuss all the way back in like oh. 2010 or something like that. I don't remember any of the songs on it, but I do remember this performance from the White House gig, which was Mother Nature's Son, and that would be something by Jack White. <laughs> To 
positive with this one this is an incredible performance it's a great tribute to paul and the way he's molded these two songs together is it's it's beautiful beautifully seamless yeah I, I wasn't expecting it to go into um into the other song and i think um it's a really stark performance compared to all the others it's very mm. authentic jack jack white isn't it um, he does play the burt whedon play in a day version of mother nature's son which is the version that i play okay Playing the finger-picking version is really, really hard in Macca's two-finger style. Um, so he plays the version I play, which is which is good. But, I, yeah, I did like the performance, and I, I, I tend to like everything he does, to be honest. I find him a really interesting performer. And he cut through all the schmaltzy stuff, didn't he? Um, and it was, yeah, the most live performance, perhaps, of the, of the night. I liked it. Yeah, I was definitely getting some kind of one-hand-clapping concert-in-the-backyard vibes, vibes from this. Yeah. And- it's all done in just under three minutes as well. Like it's a real running, running gun style, and the arrangement on on the second one as well just sent me right back to that first McCartney having that bang 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 bang. I was like, oh my god! And the fact that he's giving such a shout out to such a minor track is yeah. clearly is clearly an attempt to win some Paul points. But I don't think he wins the award for the most obscure McCartney song played that night, which. It's a shame, really, because he certainly deserves some uh, some props for that. But uh, just yeah, not... I love that song. I love that song, and the, the McCartney one lo-fi vibe is definitely Jack White all over, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'd, I'd be up for an album with Jack White covers of McCartney songs in that way. Going back to what I said earlier about not liking covers, I, I do like almost everything Jack White does. So yeah, that in that vein would be really great. Lo-fi stripped down stuff. Great cover of I just don't know what to do with myself as well. But uh, Jack White does yeah, as well. There is. His voice is also pretty incredible in this. It's very vulnerable and warbly. And the uh, do-do-do's in Mother Nature's Son, excellent. They are done absolutely perfectly. Yeah, like a lovely singing vampire. Love it. <laughs> and, and then obviously this would lead to him doing the McCartney 333 edition with Paul yeah. decade, a decade later after this as well. And he still looks exactly the same, rather hilariously. <laughs> Uh, like, yeah, he hasn't aged at all in like 30 years, has he, Jack White? I think um, yeah, he's one of those uh, indefatigably cool people who, um, just, yeah, he's just... He's, no, I, yeah, but he's, dude, it's, it, it's like Johnny Depp, though. You only get a certain amount of time, and then like it's like when Bilbo has the ring taken off him in Lord of the Rings, suddenly you then age 70 years. Very, very, yeah, very, ev- very quick. Eventually, you're going to have to get a haircut and, and brush your teeth, and they will, they, we'll see then. We'll see then who ages better. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Following on from a performance 
featuring two of my favourite deep cuts, we now move on to a song that is easily one of my least favourite Beatle numbers ever. But at least we'd have to hear Paul sing it. This is Faith Hill doing The Long and Winding Road. The Long and Winding Road I guess then if they were to be on stage with Paul, like Rusty kind of goes pretty insane with the solo on, on this. And it's not the Henry McCullough, play it the way I told you to play it, Henry, kind of, <laughs> kind, of kind of way. And he does make it his own here. And also Wix is on the piano, which is the instrument Paul would be mm. on. 
Uh, and he also switched to the organ for the solo without missing a B as well. So in terms of the arrangement and the backing, I was very impressed. But yeah, the song itself. It was nice. It was, it was nice and loose, loads of, loads of feel in it. I, I didn't get any feel from, from uh, Faith Hill's vocal at all. I felt some of her timing was strange. Um, but just like just like she'd sung it a thousand times, uh, and this was the thousand and one time she'd she'd done it. But yeah, not a big fan of either the performance or the song on this one. Now, here's a nature versus nurture chicken and egg question because I've done a bit of research, and a lot of the people who appear at this gig are people who already had pre-established Paul McCartney covers in the bag as part of their set lists. Now, how oh. much of this is down to the fact that? If you're friends with Paul McCartney, you can probably ask him at a party for free, can I use this song? And he'll just say yes. And that's much easier than being, say, a touring band that's only just getting to Bloodfest in America somewhere. And you have to pay 10 grand to use it, you know, the once for a live show or something like that. Or how much of this is, you know, Paul is going around, saying, you know, so um, does Dave Grohl do, uh, do uh, a cover of, of any of us? Oh, he does. Bring him along, I guess, because you know it's yeah. clear. It, it's clear that it's not like you know when David Bowie could barely sing, sing, sing along to. Um, let, was it Let It Be? He kept singing wrong. Yeah, oh, Live Aid. Live Aid. Yeah, Bowie clearly doesn't know the words, and you don't get any of that here. You know. <laughs> no, definitely. I'm sure it's in their repertoire. And I, I definitely got that from from Faith Hill. I'm sure. I, I ignorance abounds here. I don't know what her back catalogue is like, or really what genre she sits in. Do you? I think she's. I'm gonna say country. I'm, yeah, it's, yeah, potentially. I think it was very uh, white lady singing a soul song without with a nice bit of technique without too much soul in it. Mm-hmm. But almost everyone that sings that song has the same result, really, because it's mostly schmaltz. And take the schmaltz out of it, and it's just a paint by numbers McCartney ballad, isn't it? Really, after that, oh, the Tony Bennett one haunts my nightmares. It really does. <laughs> too much schmaltz. <laughs> Next up, and we have a duet. From this evening that no one ever talks about actually, which is criminal because it really is excellent. On piano, we've got Herbie Hancock, and on vocals, we've got someone I mentioned earlier actually, the sublime Corin Bailey Ray performing Blackbird. <laughs> to admit that I am incapable of recognizing a melody until I've been told beforehand what the melody is. So like so many of my friends are virtuos are guitar players. And unless it's something obvious like come together, you know, he'll he'll do like down now 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 and I can't tell that that's hey bulldog. I'm just physically <laughs> oh, really? I can't do You're it. Blind. And 
it was about a minute in before I realised they were they were doing Blackbird. I was like, "Oh, well, this is a nice in, like instrumental. Uh, it's just Blackboard or something, you know?" Yeah, no, they inverted the melody on the piano, didn't they? A little bit, and I didn't know what it was until she kicked in with it. Either um, I loved this, by the way. I think Corinne Bailey Ray is brilliant. I, lo- I love her voice. Um, I love what she does to everything, and why she is an enormous megastar is a big travesty, really. But I, I loved this. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was everything that Faith Hill's performance wasn't, which was delicate mm. and beautiful and sweetly sung. Loved it. Loved the piano arrangement as well. I thought it was great. Oh, it was, it was like Tchaikovsky or Beethoven was there. It was so yeah. in, like intricate and masterful. And there's this bit, like just as Corinne sings Into the Light, there's this second of like dramatic silence followed by this like flurry of notes. It's really cool. Yeah, Blackbird also doesn't really have a solo, despite being one of the all-time no. great guitar songs which is quite interesting. And yet here, Herbie adds a little one. And, you know, it's so freeform and poetic. And it's almost like that was just always a part of the song. It, it doesn't feel out of place or anything like that. No, it doesn't. It's, it's great. I think, um, funny, my, a friend of mine owns a guitar shop. And the, the joke is, isn't it, the Stairway to Heaven is the most played, no, no Stairway to Heaven sort of in guitar mm-hmm. shops, but the most played song in his shop is Blackbird. Um, people coming in, picking a guitar off the wall and playing Blackbird badly, mostly, because it's actually it's quite a tricky one. But See, uh, before you get to the guitar shop confidence, though, you have to incessantly annoy people in sixth form and college common rooms. And the one I always heard whenever someone picked up a guitar is, Today is going to be the... Oh, not again, <laughs> not Wonderwall again. There's one of the genuinely funny memes is uh, of uh, someone having a house party and then someone throwing a grenade into it, which on it is written Wonderwall on acoustic. There's <laughs> always that one person sat there thrashing out a Wonderwall. And God, I haven't, I haven't had that for ages. Isn't that, that's, the best thing about the pandemic is not hearing someone play Wonderwall on an acoustic, I think. <laughs> Oh, my so, yeah, gosh. but Blackbird's picked out a lot, and I think um, I really enjoyed that piano arrangement of it. Um, and we'll probably listen to it again after we've done this, actually, because that was one of my favourite performances of the whole show, I think. And uh, you're right about her voice as well, just uh, absolute delicate control, a real voice of her generation. Uh, mm. Get Macca with a female vocalist, who knows what she's doing. It's It's a winning combo. And I don't think we, as as two white guys from from the UK, need to really go into too much about the significance of this particular song being sung at this particular time to this particular crowd. You know, there is a bit of mild controversy surrounding whether McCartney did write this originally as a civil rights song in the first place, but that's kind of irrelevant now because once the song's been released to, to the people, it becomes whatever interpretation they want it to be. And, and this song does mean that for so many millions of people. And the fact that they're sitting yeah. in front of Obama's, it, 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 it's stunning. You know, you have to take yeah. it. Yeah, there's a poignancy about it. And I think you're right. I'm, I'm not convinced McCartney did write it with that in mind. I think it just, like a lot of his great stuff, it probably came out of nowhere and then he, put it on that. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's so many universal themes around his work and that's one of them. Um, and you're absolutely right. That's a really poignant moment thinking about it in front of Obama and the coming together of so many things that happened during that time. And so delicately sung as well. I think it was a, yeah, a beautiful moment, genuinely beautiful moment in the show. No one in McCartney's press camp though is going to allow him to accidentally help rate against fight help against the fight against racism you know what i mean because that's a bit too bumbly monty python life of brian like oh i'm in the wrong place at the wrong time i just happened to write 
the the civil rights song whoopsie doodle <laughs> it's not it's not the walrus he's a very naughty boy now go away oh yeah that's another uh, huge then venn diagram the third circle right, then beatles yeah right bond yeah bond but... as well yeah the three big b's of the 60s you know but and and an incredible performance. Don't want to don't want to make too many jokes about that without one really as often as I would normally. But speaking of making jokes, let's move on to a performance that I will gladly uh, eviscerate, uh, which is the rendition of Penny Lane by Mr. McManus himself, Elvis Costello. Thank you. I was asked if I would like to say something, and of course, I would just like to say this: that music is often a us against them proposition and the next song that you're going to hear is named after a place from which my mother comes from about half a mile away so you can imagine when this thing of wonder and beauty came on the radio myself as a young man my dad my mam and the cat all <laughs> stood up and took notice and uh, I think that's a beautiful way that Paul's songs unite us. Thank you. I love you. And thank you for your songs and your friendship. In Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head. First of all, what do we think of Elvis Costello? both solo and with Paul I like him one of my favourite albums is um, this year's model I think I, 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 I do love Elvis with the attractions I don't own large amounts of his work um, but I do enjoy him and I, I enjoy his voice I actually quite like this performance mm-hmm. partly because the piccolo trumpet was there being played live and that was a nice ooh, that was perfect that was a really good moment I, I enjoyed that He's also got one of one of rock and roll's great receding hairlines, Elvis Costello, and there's there's a lot to be said about that. Is is just gradually moving backwards, and he refuses to do anything about. And I'm a big admirer of that, as being a politically challenged person myself. Uh. It's one of the he wears it with unabashed freedom, uh, and he's happy about it. So I, I like that. He's yeah, he's kind of become a, an elder statesman of for an old punk. Really, he's now kind of a jazzy songwritery kind of type of me. Oh no, that is that that sorry, sorry to interrupt you. That has so confused me when I was researching Flowers in the Dirt. Because like, because whenever you read about Cassell, it's like, oh he was this this, this skinny bratty punk. But then whenever you see him post like 1993, it's it's the Trilby glasses suit. Hello, I'm Elvis Costello, pleased to meet you. It's not like Sid Vicious still spitting at people. No, from the sh- uh, his version of shipbuilding and stuff in the mid nineties, he's, he's he's a jazz man, and that's where, kind of where he sits, almost like a post-punky, jazzy type person. I, I quite enjoyed this performance personally. Um, what what did you hate about it? Uh, I just I can't stand the way he sings. I love Pump It Up <laughs> as a track. I think I think that's really funny. A song about masturbation. I'm all for that. But this nasally downbeat Woody Allen-esque voice is totally <laughs> unsuited for the bright ray of sunshine that is Penny Lane. Oh, God, Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. Ooh, oh, gosh. Ugh. 
<laughs> You've actually completely, hey, that was perfect, and completely ruined Elvis Costello for me now. Yeah. He's forever. It just, like, I, 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 I want to pump it up because I would never want to have sex with someone who didn't love, you know. I would never want to be my, in a band that would have me as a member. <laughs> my, my, daughter, my, my daughter's just really getting into The Simpsons, and um, I put on Blonde on Blonde in the summer when we were having a barbecue. It's still summer now, but when it was real summer. And she went, oh, I'm not putting Mr. Burns on again. Uh, and that that's the end of Dylan for me now. I can't not hear Mr. Burns singing singing Dylan's song. <laughs> and that, you, you, oh, you've now done that with Elvis Costello. Excellent. Oh. <laughs> now, I'm trying to think of um, a good one for him would be, uh, Come, you masters of war. Yes. Uh, oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm, who would be Smithers though now? Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Maybe a Dave Van Ronk or something. Up <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, we do have to give a big shout out to Sergeant Matthew Harding of the United States Marine Band or Marine Marching Band. You are correct. It's like he he comes from a universe that's made up entirely of just that solo, and he's just been popped out of existence to do it perfectly, and then he fades away. <laughs> you know. He's been picked out of the Pepper Sessions. Yeah. He's been in stasis for 50 years and plumped on stage. And now back in your box you go. And I don't think he really exists as a human man outside of the performance. It's a, it's a Kafka-esque nightmare. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's, you know when Uncle Albert's being kept alive in stasis in that Only Falls and Horses nightmare sequence? Uh, it, during the war, during the war, during the war. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's... It must have been put to bed years ago because, A, that was 11 years ago, but wasn't there a debate for a long time that the piccolo trumpet couldn't possibly have been played in that original key? Uh, it must have been tampered with in some way. And then the original player coming out saying, no, I definitely did play it like that. Wasn't there a, de- isn't there a debate about that? Um, well, no, if there is. Then- I, well, uh, on McCartney 321 recently, I think he talks about uh, another song that has a trumpet solo in it and he gets it mixed up with the piccolo trumpet story from this song. Yes. Mm. Uh, I can't remember which one specifically it is, but I know that that definitely happens. Only, yeah, only because Duncan Drive was kind enough to point it out to me. Next up, we have the second artist whose name meant absolutely nothing to me, but fortunately she didn't remind me of a 30 Rock character. She didn't remind me of Tracy Morgan or anything like that, thankfully. This is Emmy Lou, not Amy Lou, Emmy Lou Harris. Emmy Lou. Yeah. Emmy Lou? Emmy Lou? Come back to Bay it. Yeah, this is a, uh, as Emily performing for no one. Never heard of this one. Does this song uh, 
sorry, I've never heard of this artist before, but did she do this song justice for you? Yeah, I, I know of her, um, and I loved this performance, actually. I thought that added a lot of um, sadness to the, the song, whereas mm. there's a lot of sort of mon monochrome bleakness to the revolved version of this song, isn't there, I think? Mm. Um, it leaves you sort of a bit hollow and, and the rest of it. But I thought she brought a lovely blues sadness to it. I, I thought it was nice, actually. I, I enjoyed this, and I watched it twice, actually. Once it was over, I watched it again. I do like a sad, a sad song, I think. I, I've heard this song so many times um, and it's something I play that I think the sadness has been replaced by familiarity and I've, I'm hearing someone else put some real sadness into it which is what I thought she did in the performance really brought it to life for me again I enjoyed it did you not? Oh no I loved it point A yeah. she didn't change the sex of the song uh, or no. I, I, I always liked that when Jack White does Jolene for example, that, that 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 kind of thing. But I'm always fascinated when you transpose the main melody from one instrument to another. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to have the guitar version of For No One. And she was already holding her own with it, and she really quite, quite nailed that transposition. But once Wixie comes back in with his own beautiful piano arrangement, the song, mm -hmm. to, to, to use an oft-over-quoted phrase, it, it cranks it up to 11 for me at that yeah, where it really yeah. becomes its own thing and then you get Wix's piano solo as well and that was really magical um, yeah I think it was its own thing it's in a different key and from a slightly different place that I felt like it was sung from and I think you're right once the, the the arrangement came into its own I thought it was it was a standalone thing of its own I, I really I really loved it really loved it and it was probably enough to make me go and find some more of her work and become a bit more familiar with it to be honest because I like that kind of sadness in her, in her voice I enjoyed it forging ever onwards and we have an artist who's clearly trying to get into McCartney's good books by playing something mm. so obscure that only a true talent such as himself could ever pull it off really uh, performing celebration this is long long Since this is a Paul McCartney chronological show, I am yet to hear any of Paul McCartney's solo classical work outside of the Christian pop track because that that appears on a the Pipes of Peace uh, archive collection. Uh, so when I read the title of Celebration, I was thinking either this was like Congratulations, me, me too, answer, yep, or it was a, a new composition to celebrate Paul winning winning this award. So it was going to be that would have like, been very Paul, wouldn't it? That would have been yeah. very Paul. Freedom yeah. and all that, yeah, 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 or like the uh, Linda McCartney birthday song, some, mm. some, something like that. It, I mean, I'm, I'm upset that this gig didn't have, you know, the shitty Lipper acoustic riff song that he does every year. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, uh, you just keep going, ding, 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 Gershwin, 
I want to tell you that I'm hurting. You know, it's really awkward. Diddly 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 and the way he does it every time. But long, long, yeah, this is a matter of taste for me. I'd like to sit here now, folks, and tell you that I would. I'm more than happy to sit with my monocle and champagne and listen to classical piano, but. I can't. <laughs> I can't. This is this holds no interest to me outside of the fact that it's a track from Standing Stone and the Standing Stone track had lyrics originally. So, yep, this is quite impressive that he, he got, he's got the vocal melody and the instrumental going all at the same time with his flurry of notes. But I'm not going to listen to it ever again after this day, I don't think. No, I was. Um, I do like a bit of classical here and there. Um just I simply I listen to classical music and some and jazz when I'm reading or trying to concentrate on something because I've got um, yeah I, I'm finding it difficult to concentrate on things at times and just a bit of background something that my conscious brain can go hmm, and then while I sort of work on something else and I've listened to Standing Stone before and probably once and I had to I had to find what this song was and the, the original orchestrated version is better than this I found this really dull and very music-y without the strings and all the rest of the arrangement um, it's just quite an unmelodious piece of piano music that is completely unremarkable so I don't think he did any favours to Standing Stone on this at all No, (laughs) I don't think he would have driven any new fans to it it sounded like like like, like, say if you ring up MPL and say can I talk to Paul McCartney please they'd go go on hold yeah (laughs) (laughs) This is from Standing Stone, available on CD now. Or it's like, Paul McCartney, this is the FBI. We need to torture someone. We And we need the most incessant piece of music ever. Right, I'm going to give you the frog song and celebration. <laughs> Just... Here's Lang Lang. Yeah, no, yeah it, was, it was pretty dire. Um, just from a... From someone who's such a natural melodicist and, and, and... No, but you know, you know that anyone who knows anything about the world of classical music is listening to us right now and scoffing, like, who are these utter plebs who don't know the wonders of Long Long? And it's like, go enjoy your concerts. I'm not going to hold that against you, but I'm never going to pay to see something like this. Well, I'm definitely not going to pay to see something like that. I, he he might be, you know, he might be able to play Rachmaninoff in a, an amazing style and the rest of it. But that, and it's no criticism against him, but I think he found a piece of music without any melody, stripped it of all the <laughs> things that are good about it, and then extended it. And I think that was the result of that performance. I think really... even <laughs> most, I think <laughs> even the most polite people in the audience were going, good. "Oh, this is, yeah, this is good." Yeah, I'll just be there going, like, "Play the Peter Gunn theme." Play Twinkle Twinkle. Yeah, (laughs) And it's Tom Hanks. Oh my God. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure if that joke will even make the cut there. (laughs) (laughs) On to our next guest this evening. And to call this man a McCartney fan or a familiar face at McCartney based events is a mahusive understatement. You know him, you love him. He is the drummer of Nirvana. Dave Grohl. He also does some other band after that. I can't remember. Uh, doing band on the run. You know, I have to say, I'm a native of the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. And, uh, so, I grew up in the era I've probably played every club and every basement and every arena and every stadium. But all of that has nothing on playing to Paul. You're definitely my hero. Mr. President, you're my other hero. 
Thanks for having me. To say this is Dave God doing Bam on the Run is quite a regular thing I say on this podcast, really, because he's been doing this since... Okay, let's have a look. Uh, the Foo Fighters recorded this for Radio 1, a compilation back in 2004, released in 2007. It was part of their Greatest Hits collection in 2009. I was on their Covers album in 2011 and has been part of over 100 set lists. So you've probably heard them play wow. this before. As McCartney once said, what's wrong with that? This is probably legitimately one of the best McCartney covers of a solo property ever yeah. it's it's not quite Guns N' Roses live and let die let's not let's let's not go crazy here but this is unashamedly badass and you know there was a, a slight lack of rock here we do have Jack White but he's kind of alt rock kind of weird yeah. folky rock he's more of a, he's, he's closer to Tom Waits than to than to yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah. than to Dave Grohl and to have Dave Grohl here as the last bastion of, yo, do you remember when rock stars used to have long hair and be on the radio? Yeah! You know, he's the, <laughs> like, who else could have been here? Matt Bellamy, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, right, yeah. Uh, Alex Turner, Maroon 5, who would be here? <laughs> Come on. Chris Martin, Chris Martin. I think this fits Chris Dave Grohl like a glove. I know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, carry on. He's the kind of alternative though, isn't he? I think, um, Dave Grohl, this fits Dave Grohl like a glove, doesn't it? This song and this performance. This is like he's just put on an old pair of band on the run trousers and gone for another sit down. I think it's um, this is a great performance, and you know Dave Grohl is probably the natural heir to Paul McCartney, isn't he? The most sort of loved, mm-hmm. 
respected you know, rock human, if you like, um, around at the moment. I think um, he's in the ascendancy as, as a really loved person at the moment, and, and rightly so. I think after after Beatles things, Nirvana was the, the big thing for me as a teenager. Um, I don't know how you feel about Nirvana, but I was obsessed with them. I, mean, I, I loved them beyond reason. Uh, and Dave Gold as an extension of that. Um, I, I like the Free Fighters. I'm not an enormous record buyer of them. I've been to see them live a few times. They're, they're great value live. They've got a great greatest hits collection, but I yeah. couldn't name an album track outside of something like Arlandria off the latest album, you know. <laughs> That's kind of where I am as well with it. Yeah. I, I enjoy Dave Grohl more than the Foo Fighters track. Um, there was a documentary about Dave Grohl on not long ago, and it was a bit of it was in the build-up to this gig where he'd been asked to do it. And he was ta- just like Paul McCartney was, he was taken on the stage to do a quick sound check. And he was like, so is Paul Mc- he thought Paul McCartney was going to play with him. And so, so where's, who, what's Paul playing? He's like, of course, going to be sat there with Obama, like, face up next to him. Like, he was like, oh my Christ almighty. <laughs> <laughs> he was suddenly, he went pale shade of white and was like, oh my God, I'm gonna, you know, it's, how awkward. It's like something that was boyhood nightmares. But yeah, he 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 doesn't waste any time getting right into this, and it was a just rock enough to not be too rock for that audience, wasn't it? There was a few screams. Oh no, no, he's definitely making a few pearl necklaces fall fall off uh, people's yeah. necks here, and a few a few uh, olives have spilled out of martini glasses out of <laughs> out of shock. Just to go back to Nirvana, I've always felt like and. Um, my flatmate Chris at uni really helped uh, change this view. Most Nirvana fans, in that kind of adolescent teenage way, maybe because I was a teenager at the time, but they kind of feel like you know this is new, man. These guys don't these guys don't know owe anything to what to what came before. And then you know you look at Kurt Cobain's tapes as a kid. It's all just she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he loved the Beatles, man. I'm sorry. It's a it's, and for me that was my way into the band. I was like, oh the. The lead singer of this band is his favorite band. Is my favorite band. Well, then I'm obviously going to like. His yeah, music. no. On, on record, Kurt would say some pretty fruity things about the Beatles, but I've got like Kurt's journals and all sorts of things. And mm. you know, it's the famous story of him when he got the deal for Bleach. He went and listened to Meet the Beatles, the American version, on 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 loop for about three days, and then came back with About a Girl, which is a very sort of very simple, very mm-hmm. catchy melody, which is a breakaway for them. But yeah, Kurt was definitely enamored with. With, with John and, and Paul, I think. Um, and he, he's got a great version of, um, and I love her. Have you heard his, his acoustic version of that? No, I've, I've got to check that out. Yeah, check that out. It's really sad, um, as you'd expect, slow, it's like drone-like, doo-doo-doo-doo, mm. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah, I, I, I think Kurt had a lot to give and would have given a lot more. Interesting, I was interested to see what he would have thought of Dave Grohl now, so many years on. No, uh, but no, 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 he would have been making comments about Grohl the way John may would have made comments about what Paul's doing. I think so. Doing that. I think there's, there's, there was a John and Paul thing between them two, and I think it was an interesting... Di- Had they gone on longer, I think it would have been a more Kurt and Dave band rather than a Kurt written band, I think. Yeah, but, you know, Chris Novoselli, though, he's done more of what George said he was going to do in terms of... He just left. He just left. Yeah. Yeah. Just gone. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> And, like, uh, and I love that. Yeah. It, uh, just also a quick a quick shout out for this gig. This is pre-Servana, sadly. So Dave would have to wait a couple of years before we can get... Do you remember? 
Set me free! Oh. <laughs> so like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would have been great if they if they'd have played played that here. Yeah. Also, I liked that it, this was Dave Grohl and it was just Dave Grohl. This wasn't a Foo Fighters performance. The McCartney band is back on stage yeah. again. And again, this is them going, Paul, we're going to do it a little bit harder than we do it with, 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 with you. Like Dave, Dave Grohl doesn't have a safe word like you do. No, <laughs> I, think, I think the band really come, up, come alive for like the first time. In, during the performance during this because yeah. there is a sense of wild abandon with Dave the big mm-hmm. big enormous Dave up front just screaming and, and ripping it up mm-hmm. I'd love to see that band go full out because I think there's a, there's a lot in there isn't there yeah I thought it was their, it was probably their best performance uh, well I like that Rocky stuff so yeah. it is, but it's a really good performance of that song oh, oh, do they still make Prelude in can, can we get some Prellies for these for these guys oh, you know Oh, if they do, then I'm I'm getting some on order. That sounds yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, Mac Shaw, guys, come on, <laughs> Mac Shaw. <laughs> right, folks, it's time to move on to the real showstopper of the evening: the headline track, the meme song, the track that everyone first talks about when they mention this gig. Together, at last, performing their number one hit song that objectively is good, no matter what your post-orgasm guilt-ridden mind says. This is Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder's Ebony and Ivory. Once again, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. Thank you very much. This is such an exciting evening. I've got to say that um, a person who was with Motown in the very beginning when I was 11 years old was the one that brought me this, he told me about this song that Paul McCartney wanted to do a song with me. I said, well, bring it on, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, when he told me the, 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 the actual title of the song, I said, you know, it'll be my joy. And it was such a joy, Paul, doing that song with you in Montserrat. It was so much fun there, driving cars and flying planes. <laughs> I love your pieces. Recalls the Montserrat sessions by name at the start of yeah. this song. Oh, I love that. My my trivia so gland was swelling. Yeah. Like, oh, so good. Do we need to again to explain why this song is important? You know, the significance of Paul McCartney playing with the song with Stevie Wonder in front of Obama at this time to the, and, to, and to the world as well. You know, it screams, the world is great, you know, don't worry, be happy, everything's yeah. gonna be all right. There's no pandemic on the way. No, this is one of those songs that you used to sort of hit McCartney with, isn't it? It's one of the schmaltzy, cheesy songs, but 
I got given a double taped album when I was young of number one hits of the 80s. Uh, and this song was on it. And this is probably the first solo McCartney song I ever knew of. Yeah. And I loved it. I, as a child, I played it over and over because it's, like I say, it's objectively a, it's a good song. If you, yeah. I don't care what you say. It's a um, great melody, well sung by two great singers. And I think had it been written and released now, it would be an enormous hit record. Mm. And I think it's unfairly put in with Frog Song and things like that. No, I actually like Frog Song as well. So shut up to all the haters of Frog Song out there because it's actually a really well arranged piece of music. But I, I thought this was great again but putting Stevie up against Paul showed Paul's voice up a little bit here I thought for the first time Paul's a little bit warbly on some of those notes but Stevie's just strong bang straight in there uh, so yeah really really enjoyed that performance I was trying to think of a riff where it's like oh well since racism's been solved what would the issue of today oh no wait racism hasn't been solved the issue would still <laughs> would still be the same today just in it's getting worse fine okay good yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know <laughs> I don't know. Mask wearer and COVID denier. Yeah, I don't know. Together. Die together in Perth. Yeah, all that. But I, I loved Stevie's anecdote at the beginning, uh, like you say, about uh, recording this at Montserrat and everything and, so the, and driving cars and flying planes. And then that got a big laugh. And then Paul put his arm around it and went, that's true. So someone's letting Steve, uh, Stevie Wonder drive cars and fly planes in Montserrat. So that's the big takeaway for me. There is that famous joke, what's the fastest thing on land? Stevie Wonder's speedboat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, I, I enjoyed that little anecdote and I got quite a big laugh, didn't it? So. There was sadly no evidence of Steve Wonder not being blind on stage because there's a fantastic compilation on YouTube called Steve Wonder's Not Blind. And it's just a compilation of him catching <laughs> stuff. Yeah, like like, like like a microphone falling and he just catches it and it's like, it's, he's not blind! Uh, it's my favourite conspiracy since Paul is dead. Oh, what a great, what a great, wouldn't that be amazing if he just suddenly big, did a massive reveal or something for his 80th birthday? Yeah. I can see. Yeah. Well, no, when he came out on, on, on stage, when I saw him, he went, I have never seen so many beautiful people. And he got the biggest laugh of any crowd I've ever seen. Because <laughs> it, it it diffused the tension of, you know, every dumbass who was going, oh, who's blood? Oh, it's okay. I can enjoy the show now. Like, it was, yeah, yeah. It was literally that. You know, like, in the awful way that Michael J. Fox just makes Parkinson's jokes now. And it's like, please stop it now. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to. Yeah. No, Stevie, Stevie Wonder being blind was one of the great joke tropes of the 80s, wasn't it? If you were young and at school. It was, yeah, it was, well, Stevie Wonder and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I can imagine that would relieving some tension, but... In all seriousness, though, yeah, there, there is no irony in the room at this moment. Everyone in attendance is taking the song earnestly and at face value. Possibly the most powerful performance of this song ever, ever recorded. Probably. At least, yeah. Yeah. Especially in terms of impact, people who watched it live on the day, I'm sure it was broadcast, and then the millions of views it has on YouTube now. I don't want to take the mic What's out not to like about it? Yeah, I don't. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to either, because it's um, great song, a lovely song at the right time in front of the, exactly the right people. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that being now, to be honest. So, good. Oh. I'm not going to take the mick out of it. What I also like about the song in the choice of language is that both of both Ebony and Ivory are inherently African as well, which is something that no one ever really yeah. really touches on. So, it incarnate. Yeah, that's true. It, it, in my head, it, it's the it's a it's we all come from Africa kind of thing. We all come so from we, the same. Yeah, we're all one. Yeah, yeah different shades of key from the same beast. It's not. It's not. It's not Pearl and 
Oh, what's the black rock uh, made from volcanoes? Oh, poo. Um, yeah, I, I do know. Hang on. It's... I don't know. Onyx. Is it Onyx? Or onyx. Something? Yeah, or something like that. Um, you know, it's... it's um, again, I like to read a lot into things here, folks, and that's one that's been percolating around. At this point, Obama comes on stage and presents Paul with the award itself. I think the best thing to do for me here would be to play Obama's speech and Paul's acceptance in full. It really speaks for itself as a statement and as a time capsule. Again, don't even want to make fun of this as easy as it would be. I'm sure I could do some funny impressions of Obama and Paul and upset everyone, but we'll just play the clip. And now everyone, oh, uh, also just, uh, I'll, I'll cut this bit out. We can literally breeze through these, these, these next ones because it's just Paul doing pre-established songs that we've talked about on this show a million times. Yeah, so a million times, yeah. Not going to be keeping you much longer. We'll hopefully be wrapped up for about half past maybe. Oh, yeah, sure. To present the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize, the President of the United States. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please, everybody have a seat. The show's not over. <laughs> to all the tremendous artists from all the genres and backgrounds who joined us tonight to pay tribute to the one and only Sir Paul McCartney, thank you so much. We also want to thank the Gershwin family, uh, as well as the Library of Congress and Dr. James Billington, as well as PBS for helping to put this together. You know, Dr. Billington uh, has done extraordinary work at the Library of Congress, and his deep commitment to preserving America's cultural heritage for future generations is something that we all treasure. You know, even as we gather here tonight to present this annual award for extraordinary contributions to American music and culture, that's right, we stole you, Paul. <laughs> uh, it goes without saying that uh, this has been a very difficult time. We've gone through a difficult year and a half, and right now, uh, our thoughts and our prayers are with friends in another part of the country that is so rich in musical heritage. The people of the Gulf Coast uh, who are dealing with something that we uh, simply have not seen before. And it's heartbreaking. Reaffirm, I think, together our commitment to see to it that their lives and their communities are made whole again. But. But part of what gets us through tough times is music, the arts, the ability to capture that essential uh, kernel of ourselves, that part of us that uh, sings even, even when times are hard. And it's fitting that the library has chosen to present this year's Gershwin Prize for Popular Song to a man whose father played Gershwin compositions for him on the piano. Uh, a man who grew up to become 
the most successful songwriter in history, Sir Paul McCartney. Now, by... By its very definition, popular music is fleeting. Rarely is it composed with an eye toward standing the test of time. Where still does it actually achieve that distinction? And that's what makes Paul's career so legendary. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly half a century since four lads from Liverpool first landed on our shores and changed everything overnight. I have to share this story. I, while we were sitting here, uh, I learned that the bass that Paul was playing on stage is the same bass that he played uh, at the Ed Sullivan show, uh, which he, he, he told me it cost him 30 pounds. Uh, he says he suspects it's worth a little more now. But the Beatles, uh, they weren't the first rock stars. They'd be the first to say that others had opened uh, that door for them. But they blew the walls down for everybody else. In a few short years, they had changed the way that we listened to music, thought about music, and performed music forever. They helped to lay the soundtrack for an entire generation. Uh, an era of endless possibility and of great change. He's composed hundreds of songs over the years, with John Lennon, with others, or on his own. Nearly 200 of those songs made the charts. Think about that. And stayed on the charts for a cumulative total of 32 years. <laughs> And his gifts have touched billions of lives. As he later confessed of the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, where he carried that bass out, that one evening that changed everything, uh, Paul said, luckily, we didn't know what America was. We just knew our dream of it, or we probably would have been too intimidated. Tonight, it is uh, my distinct pleasure to present America's highest award for popular music on behalf of a grateful nation, grateful that a young Englishman shared his dreams with us, Sir Paul McCartney. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is such a fantastic evening for me. I mean, getting this prize would just be good enough, but getting it from this president
And Mr. President said, you know, we're going through difficult times on a number of fronts. Um, but when I knew I was coming here tonight, I, I knew I had to say that even though we all know you've got lots of really difficult issues to deal with, I just wanted you to know you have billions of us who are rooting for you, and we know you're going to come through. And after that, after talking about the most discussed song of this gig, we're now going to talk about the second most discussed song from this gig for good reason. This is Paul McCartney doing Michelle. Oh, boy. So, uh, yeah, but as I say, for all of us, me and the band, it just is so special. Right, guys? And, and, and the... Uh, it's just so special, you know? But, and the guests who've come along and um, honored me by singing my songs, I just love the interpretations. You can imagine for me, having written those songs uh, my way, and then hearing them their way, it's, it's really inspiring. And I want to thank them very much for doing that. They're beautiful, really nice thing. The next song we like to do is a song I have been itching to do at the White House. And I hope the president will forgive me if, if I sing this one. One, two, goes to a fancy dress party and there's a woman on his back and uh, a bloke says what are you going as a turtle who's that that's michelle, michelle. Yeah, yeah. classic <laughs> classic peter k joke there folks it was great to hear paul do the michelle story he just did it in mccartney 321 always nice to compare that but obviously the big standout bit of this is that he's looking michelle obama in the face looking obama in the face doing a little wink and a nod and doing Michelle, like genius, like this is this it's is the bit most... orcs, but lovely at the same time, isn't it? No, well, I mean, it's not exactly happy birthday, birthday. Mr. No, right. President <laughs> Obama. <laughs> Obama's just there, and Paul's like lounging around on the piano <laughs> in a in a pink dress, smouldering. <laughs> oh my god! But um, this is cute. Uh, I think. I think in terms of all-time performances of Michelle. I don't think this is a song that has many all-time performances, at least in the pop culture sense. This is probably the most widely known one. And they do it incredibly well. They, you know, this is one of my favorite Be Be Beatles songs ever. This was my dad's favorite Beatles tune. It always makes me very emotional. But all I needed to hear, well, all I'd ever need to hear is, oh, this is the version where Wixie dominates on the accordion and it's not the most the acoustic version. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, Just, <laughs> sold. As long as Wix is going, I'm happy, and that's what I get. Wixie is the most unsung hero of the last like 
30 years of McCartney lore. Like, oh my God, he'd, he'd be nothing without without that man right now. What did you think of this one? I liked it. It was, a, yeah, I think you're probably right. It's probably the most known live version of Michelle, isn't it, now? Um, I liked it. I liked the Paul bringing in the slight awkwardness about I could be the first person to be thumped out by a president line and all that sort of stuff. It was a nice little, again, aren't I being naughty? Pat on the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All that sort of stuff. Classic, classic Macca, I would call this performance. Yeah, it was good. Again, it, 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 you know, it's a classic example of his uh, straining a little bit on, on some of the notes. But look, I, I don't even know why I'm bringing that up as a critique because he's, you know, he's a, he's a man that's absolutely ragged his voice for 60 years. I don't know what anyone, anyone else expects. But he's pretty well voiced in it. Yeah, it's nothing not to like about it, really. I think it's, uh, it's got a bit of a strange reputation, Michelle. I think people either love it or hate it, don't they? As Beatles fans, it's one of those divisive ones. I've never met much division. I've never, well, sorry, I've never encountered much yeah. division on this one. I, I guess. Uh, right in, I folks. Um, if anyone hates Michelle or doesn't like it or thinks it's even mediocre, write in at pormacartneypod@gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts. It's one of those knowing Paul McCartney songs, like, you know, taken from his time as trying to impersonate a Frenchman to, to Paul Girls as a teenager and all, all the rest of it. I like it. I've always enjoyed it. It's, it's, it fits right into, into Rubber Soul and everything. But um, yeah, again, not much not to like about the performance. I like the cheeky known winks of Michelle Obama. What's not to like? I'm not going to derive it here. You know, there's that type of, there's a subcategory of songs in Paul's mind called Songs that John either commented on or outright said he liked. So here, mm-hmm. there, and everywhere, Michelle, like he will always associate those songs with being good purely because I, that one yeah. guy who did less than half the work 50 years ago mentioned something about them once, you know? I think you're definitely right about that. I think it's a nod to the John fans out there that he's playing the songs that John liked. I think, yeah, you're right, actually. I haven't thought about that. I think you might probably hit something on that. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, Paul, you'd never catch Paul singing Obladi. Oh, wait, no. Uh, he, he still he still <laughs> sings the ones John didn't like as well. And I, I was shocked that Maxwell Silverhammer wasn't on Wings Over America. I was je- like, in, in my head canon, that would be the perfect time. Like, you open the show with it as well. <laughs> boom, 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 burda, boom, boom. You know, get Mal Evans to come and play the the anvil. He doesn't die. You know, every you know, every, I'm, I'm you know, everything's history. better. Yeah, everything's better. Everything's already better. Yeah, like live versions of it. Yeah, well, and he gets paid as well, which is which is nice. Next up, we have a song that I was not expecting in such a small venue, which is Eleanor Rigby. I could be the first guy ever to be punched out by a president. <laughs> Again. 
this is obviously Paul pulling out his high art, high society, big guns for all the intelligentsia in the crowd. Like, oh, oh, Winifred, have you heard? He also does stringed things as well. Oh, how delightful. <laughs> what what do you say his name was again? Saul McParsley. Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> I mean, look, I know this isn't, 90s era Clinton where anything can happen and investments are all over the shop but yeah couldn't we have sprung out for a few strings here Wixie is the man I would have liked just some yeah I think the the other way would have worked as well I would at this point with his his voice as he is and now sort of an elder elder statesman of music I think that was dying out for calling out for a paired back piano version of Eleanor Rigby mm. I think just him and a piano would be a really nice version of it um, bringing a lot of, sort of sadness and pathos to it where I think the, the revolver version with the synthesised mm. strings and everything just kind of takes away from some of that having an acoustic guitar for that song gives it a kind of jaunty cockney feel yeah. that, that I didn't like you know, like, I fancy yeah, my chances is. with you. I fancy my yeah. chances with you. And I, and, I, and I was like, no, no, that's not Elna Rigby. Like, Elna Rigby is stood arms by your side. It, it, you know, it, it just has a certain reverence to it, you know? Yeah, it was a it was a nod towards, it was a greatest hit performance, wasn't it, rather than an actual concert performance. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, all the way through, I was sitting there thinking, it was just him and a piano with a spotlight would have been lovely on that. And um, and we get it. that in 3, 2, 1. He proves to us that that's how the song yeah. was composed originally. Before. Yeah. So yeah. Like, he knows how to, he knows how to play it. I wonder if he would just do like, kind of just going, dun, 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 dun. Or if you do the, dun, 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 like he would, he would play the, the, the counter melody at the same time. That'd be interesting just to see how he'd construct that as well. Yeah. Paul also hears a whistle and recognises it as his daughter Mary's, which I thought was really cute, and he makes her whistle again. But yeah, every, every, everyone laughs. Great stuff. On to the penultimate track, and we see Paul slip back into conventions even further. He's now going to be unable to do anything but the big hitters in front of the leaders of the free world here, which is Let It Be. Thank you. That's my kids. Come on, Mary, listen, I want to hear the whistle. Come on, this is my... Oh. Let it be. 
I know I probably should have noticed this during Michelle, but for me, this was the song where it became very apparent for me just how strong and controlled Paul's voice can be when he doesn't have to hurl it back to the, the, everyone in the amphitheater. Can, can you hear me in row D? You know, where, where it's here, it's, it, it's literally like, let it be, let it be. Like, it's so, I mean, I'm toned up really, but, you know, he doesn't really strain and... He doesn't do the kind of whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah, yes until the last song, which I enjoyed. This isn't part of yeah. a 30-minute encore. This is just a performance of Let It Be, which you rarely ever get. It's normally part of that orgasmic furore towards the end. Everyone's going crazy. Back the climax, yeah. Yeah. This no, is Let It, was, it was, Be done control. rather well, yeah. It was a control performance of it. Um, I think, yeah, the... Um, when the opening chords of Let It Be starts, you know Hey Jude is coming next. And I think that's just, you know these two songs go together. And I think, you know, these are two songs that can expose his performance. And they often have live, haven't they? Both Let It Be and Hey Jude have gone very, very right or very, very wrong in the past. Yeah, it was it was nice. I think the shipping it to the audience and seeing, seeing his family there was, was nice. And I think it must it must have been a bigger deal than he's able to express, you know, he's saying, oh, it's a, he says a num- number of times one honour it is to be at the White House. Regardless of the president, it's, a, it's an enormous thing for a, a lad from Liverpool to have got to this. And there must be a number of those moments throughout his life. And he must still have those record, you know, lightning bolts of, I'm playing at the White House. This is ludicrous stuff. But, yeah, I think it was a, yeah, a, a nice performance of the song that, it's you know it's one of those songs that people hit Paul McCartney with because they know it's coming. It depends on how you feel about Let It Be, the, the album as well. You know, I yeah. think Let It Be and Long and Winding Road define how, how you feel about those songs. Often define how you feel about that whole album. Mm-hmm. To take those out, and it's a strange album. Um, how do you how do you feel about those two songs? I, I I think well I know that this is not a platitude that I came up with, but you can just put Let It Be and Long and Winding Road and put them on the McCartney album and yeah. things kind of make a lot more sense. It's like, oh, cool, we don't have to have 27 half-finished instrumentals on this album now, and maybe we can have more of a band experience on Let It Be. Mm. Like, you know, I would have been happy for them to dig out all tracks, like one after 909, and just do all old yeah. Beatle classics and do them in this Definitely. kind of stripped-down modern way. And then, you know, chuck in a, a For You Blue Get Old Brown Shoe back on there as well. I know, I know it's technically an Abbey Road one, but Session, that, yeah. that would have fit on there brilliantly as well. Um, but then again, if if we're doing wishes, like, okay, John's not on heroin and has eight songs in his back pocket as well. Like, the wish listing for that album can get quite extensive quite quickly, actually, because there's... Yeah. There's loads of George things you could bring in that you want a more motivated... Because the, the film version, the original film version of Let It Be... I rewatched it last year for the first time in a long time, and I think God, this is really you know, quite morose and depressing. And I realised because John doesn't say anything for forty-five minutes. Yeah, now, he's in it, but he doesn't say anything. And every other time, the Beatles are on camera as a foursome, or mm-hmm. come, John's talking and being daft or having a go at someone or doing something, but he doesn't say anything for forty-five minutes. So everyone else is filling that chasm. So yeah, him not being on heroin would have would have been nice for everybody, including him probably. But yeah, I think those two songs should have... I think John said that Long and Winding Road was McCartney's last great song, didn't he? He's, got, he's on record as saying that. Oh, God, no wonder great. Paul keeps playing it there. Oh. And there it is, going back to what he said earlier. So now, in his mind, that's a lot, his, his great song of the late Beatles era, era. So, 
they are McCartney songs, I think. If you buy into McCartney, then you like the songs and then the album perhaps. But um, yeah, there are lots of people that don't necessarily feel that way about the album and those two songs, those piano ballads. But I've always liked them because I, I like the story behind them. Mm. But, you know, maybe I'm amazed the next year as well that he, he was just at this cluster of, I want to scream at the piano, whereas my actual favourite stuff from around this point is stuff like Ooh You and Two yeah. of Us. You know, that's that's the kind of I'm into it at that point. Just... Yeah, the loose jams, slamming stuff. Well, yeah. like, to me, that's just leading on into Ram, like, perfectly that, that mm. guitar tone. But yeah, this is Paul doing Let It Be. I, I think I say this at least once an episode now where we cover the frequent songs. And what more can you say about Let It Be, you know? Uh, well, just, just before we move on from that, I think I, I always think of Let It Be in terms of George because his solo in Let It Be in both versions of it is one of my favourite George moments. Um, and I thought the live solo is also really great and really elevates the song. That That's just my little tuppence on it, but... Yeah, I always kind of wait for that moment in the song now um, and air guitar along to it. <laughs> Finally, everyone, because my guest does have to go back to his real life at some point, we have the closer to end all McCartney closers. We know it's coming. It's Hey Jude. This has been such a great honour for us all. And uh, the uh, the press conference, they said to me, you know, is this special for you? And... I don't think there could be anything more special for for us to play here. And we're thinking of making it a regular thing. <laughs> lunch times, we, we could come around. Lunch times, we're cheap. <laughs> Red acoustics, I love it. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song. For me, it's when Paul just jokes that this is going to be their regular gig from now on. I thought, yeah, yeah. we're cheap. Yeah, Paul, <laughs> that's perfect. Only Ringo would have said something funnier, you know. Yeah. But besides that, it's a great little tag for this show. Everyone stands up, Obama gets on stage, and Co, the artists come on stage. We all do the na na nas. It's equal parts awe inspiring and cringe worthy. You know Alex yeah. Jones is like watching it going, this is the Illuminati folk, they're all on stage right now. Oh my God. You know, and they are, they are absolutely losing it. But then, you know, you'll ha- but you'll also have Bernie on the other side going, those are, those are the people that kept me out of government. You know? <laughs> so, so. Paul McCartney owns 99% of the 1% of song rights. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and and Hillary's watching it thinking, I'm going to have him killed. I'm going to have him killed. (laughs) He's on the list. He's on the list. Yeah. Oh, Paul has written a song called Hillary. He's next. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, 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 Bill. I'm going to play this this one. Actually, nothing rhymes with... (laughs) Please don't kill me, Hillary. Maybe I don't know. That's uh, that's the best I've got. Sounds like it sounds like a full lyric. I'll go with that. Yeah, sounds like one that Godrich would make him go back and rewrite. You know, <laughs> you're not recording that, Paul. I told you. But yeah, 
Do you have anything to say about a performance of Hey Jude post-1999? The only, the only thing... So, what I find interesting is groups of people that don't know anything about the Beatles and then showing them something. <laughs> and there, you know, there, there are people out there, believe it or not. And I think um, I, I, I've fallen down a couple of wormholes on YouTube watching people reacting to the Beatles. They're fake. Now, They're fake. They are No, I know. Nine, nine, no. 99% of them are total BS, right? We know that. But there are a couple, um, and there's one in particular of, of, of a lady watching and listening to Hey Jude for the first time, and it's the tea shop, the David Frost performance. And she puts it on, and then the tea shop thing, da 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 all that. So she's thinking, mm. smiling for the camera, thinking, is this what it is? You can tell she's thinking, this is shit. And then it cuts to Paul, so I, Paul McCartney, and he goes into the song with his purple jacket on. Hey and she, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, he's so wide, sort of drags her in, and you can see her watching this, thinking, okay. And then when the, the sun comes out, you know, on, in the middle of Hey Jude, just before the loads of Nana Nars, and that uh, recently has become my favourite few moments, Beatle moments. The sun comes out, and she just, she's genuinely taken aback, and you can see, bang, she's in. She's a Beatles fan, and it happens in real time on camera, and it's beautiful. I'll send you it, I'll send you the video, and it's. Oh, I'm um, watch that. Yeah, because I've, I've, I've been through loads, and so many of them are so fake and forced and, and nonsense like, Bohemian, changed my the, life and everything Bohemian Rhapsody was the big one on, on a Twitter a few a few, a few few months ago people reacting to what you mean this song mm. that's the most famous song of all time you, uh, anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so that, that, that's my takeaway on Hey Jude and I've gone I've gone back to it several times the live version if I'm in the middle of writing and it's getting a bit of a slog and you're thinking what, what am I doing you know <laughs> I haven't got anything better to do no one's going to read what I'm writing all the rest of all those dances you get. I'll go back and listen to that and watch that performance, not necessarily the reaction performance, but that And my, the, sh- the shivers come every time I watch it. Just the joy, the explosion of joy, the release of it. And every time I hear Hey Jude, I think of feeling like that. So I think, yeah, that's my takeaway on Hey Jude. Uh, um, and I didn't necessarily get that with this performance because it's uh, everyone on stage being mates, jolly, no, no, no. Oh, no, when when John and Paul look at each other for reassurance two or three times during the performance, like you want to cry. It's like like they just yeah. look at each other and they smile and they are the best of friends. And like yeah, and you and you know it, and it's all there in that live that David Frost performance. I think all the people jumping on the stage, the, the clo- everything about it is so great. And I think that might be if I was forced to watch one Beatles thing over and over again for eternity, some kind of hell or heaven or depending on which way you look at it I think that might that might be it eight, eight minutes long so it wouldn't be too repetitive but that, that moment when the, the when the sun comes out and the joy is released it, it, it has moved me over and over again um, and you know, I think that's, that's kind of what we're that's certainly what I, I try and look for so yeah what can you say? Uh, just, just yeah. going back, just going back to them smiling for a sec. That's one of those things for me. Is the smoking gun that like really proves that their relationship is so much more complicated than just they liked or didn't like each other. And I feel like a lot of it might come down to just people's own experiences with how they have friends. If people just have normal, boring friends that have never upset them or questioned them, then they'd be like, "Oh yeah, why? Why would Paul be friends with this person?" And I've said this before, I'm drawn to, like, um, creative assholes in my friendship group. Like, a lot of them are, yeah. would be considered douchebags by most other people's standards. They're, they're quite intolerable, they're very opinionated, but they're also, like, brilliant geniuses. <laughs> and as long as you're not in their banter firing line, 
you know, as long as you've set up your They're own great. trench. Yeah, and you, and as long as you've got a fuck you in the pocket ready to fire right yeah. back because you need to defend yourself, they, they are the best people ever. And I don't think being friends with John would be easy by any stretch, but just to think that, like, there's this, the simple, they liked each other, they didn't like each other. It's like, do you know how complicated relationships are with your friends every day? Like, yeah, so, like, yeah. like so, imagine so having that. Imagine having that narrative put upon it as well. Every and day. And the pressure. Yeah. You know, it's that moment, isn't it? It's just, it's just me, Johnny, kind of thing. I think there's an element of that about it. No, that's scary to me. That's a horror movie moment. That is like, it's just me. And then he puts the glasses back on and starts ranting again. That's like Phil Spector level mania. That is. Um... Oh, no, well, he wasn't a Megler egomaniac and all those kind of things. Yeah. But had because he's frozen in time, you know, and 40 is young. I'm over 40 now, and I hit that moment, uh, I can't remember, it might have been a year or so ago, when I became one day older than John Lennon ever was. And that, you know, that blew my mind, you know, because I've done nothing in my life, really. Uh, uh, please but, please tell me, you walked around New York listening to Watching the Wheels, you know, like <laughs> holding, holding hands with your kids and stuff, and throwing a I, football. Yeah, I don't know all those normal things, but, you know... It, uh, you know, if you were if you were a, a, a lunatic, you you know, when you were a kid, you think, oh, John Lennon was twenty four when this happened, or Paul McCartney was twenty six when this happened, and it's well before you know it, you're older than all those things. So I think you know him being frozen in time at 40, 1980, uh, has done his reputation wonders. It's done him a lot of good because he got you know sainted and canonized and all the rest of it. But I actually think it's done him a lot of harm because you missed all the growing up that they all did and we all do. Yeah. You are right. He he has gotten the best of both worlds, uh, being in terms of his immortalization. Uh, you know, would we have seen eighty-five-year-old John going like that? Still, you know, I don't think we would. Uh, and there would be so many attempts to try and cancel John these days. He would be so cancelled. Well, I, 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 I'm writing about that, and I had to get a few women's perspectives on it because I, what I didn't want to be was middle-aged white man which i've had to accept that i now am girls let me explain to you how you feel about john lennon, you know? <laughs> yeah right so there's a lot you know obviously the stick that people hit john lennon with is he was um uh, a purveyor of domestic aggression should we say and not to trivialize that he was you know it's a matter of public record that he was cruel and occasionally violent but because he progressed so much and then got snuffed out just as he was realising how to live his life, potentially, mm -hmm. depending on what PR you believe, at what point do we, you know, because he outed himself, effectively, yeah. um, as a domestic, have uh, been violent towards women. So because he outed himself two years before the phrase uh, new man was coined, mm -hmm. um, he was a sort of head of the curve on that. Do, can we forgive people when they out themselves um, as opposed to when they get outed? It's a difficult topic to really broach sensitively in, so well, um, yeah. well in a post postmodern society probably not because we know that that's a mechanism now to yeah. out yourself early like you know it's like the the moment a kid knows at school they can't be hit by the teacher anymore then new machinations start and it's it's a it's a weird arms race it is it is yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I just read yesterday about Lennon damaging Julian's hearing because he shouted in his ear because Julian did something with a stake incorrectly yeah. one day, and it's like, yeah. oh, I didn't want to, 
No, you don't want to hear these now. And I've I've had to expose myself to some truths that I didn't want to really... Because I love the music, you know, and the people are... Just because the people are endlessly fascinating, you delve deeper than perhaps you would anywhere else, don't you? There's just footage of Ringo clubbing seals, like... (laughs) 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 But but Thomas Money didn't come through this year. (laughs) Just, Just, Just... George buying and then tearing down sections of the rainforest. Uh, so, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I need it's, more room for my garden. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to cut down all these living things so things can grow. The Maharishi said it was okay, you know. What was it Eric Idle said? I'm starting a war for peace and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh. so there you go. But yeah, so the, that... Um, Hey G performance. That was oh, yeah. the, the, That's what we were talking about. The, the, the White House, yeah, yeah. The very poor or nothing end to this episode, folks. That was indeed our chat at the White House uh, from the perspective of two British guys who have no uh, connection to the American political party machine or establishment at all. I hope we did it justice. Maybe I'll ask Ranking the Beatles how we did on that. But yeah, uh, I wouldn't say that this is an all-time must-see gig for Paul McCartney fans in terms of pop culture and knowledge and learning the music. But in terms of important gigs and very interesting curiosities and a wonderful little time capsule, to use an oft-overused phrase, uh, this is definitely something worth checking out once you've watched Rock Show and Unplugged, you know? Yeah, it's definitely third on that list, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Uh, But hey, if you're also a Stevie Wonder fan, then go and check it out as well because you get a lot of bang for your buck there but Jamie thank you so much for coming on an episode of Paul and I think this has been a long time coming I'm glad we finally managed to get it done welcome when are we going to find out about this book when are you going to hear about it next so I'm hoping to get it written by the end of the year um, and um, my publisher wants it out at the start of next year so that's definitely the plan so as soon as I know more about it I'm sure I will let you know <laughs> but yeah thanks very much for having me on no it's been a pleasure and I'm sure I'll find out about your book when you appear on two legs to promote it first yeah you know, it's a, <laughs> a, every fucking time every god I'm, I'm coming for you Hunyadi. you know you're you're on my list you know no no the moment someone thinks I'm going to go on a Beatles podcast he has this gland that's and again, he just knows <laughs> that they want to promote themselves. He's, he's, a, he's a genius, that man. But I'm really looking forward to your, to your book. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. So if it's anything like the, the chat we've had today, I know I'll enjoy it immensely. And just, I just want to say again, the Alphabeticals blog, the, 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 the content of yours that you can go check out right now, I'm sure I'll post links below, is some of the best Beatles written content that I see in regular form. It's really fun. It's really enjoyable. And it's got that... I, I always try and do this, and I did it with the podcast at the start, which is uh, the cold opens, where you just, you know, like how Iago uh, in in um, yeah. Othello, he just he he begins mid sentence, and you are just gripped. Whereas I'm like, hello, today we're going to talk about the top <laughs> ten Linda McCartney songs. My name is Sam. Intro and summary, you know, and I can't help but write like that because I'm just, but uh, yeah, um, for, as someone who likes to read stuff that makes me feel like he's back at uni again and might actually be learning something. I don't know whether I am. That's up that's to you. But If it's uh, an illusion, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's really enjoyable either way, folks. It's top-tier beat writing. It puts my blog to fucking shame. So go and check out Alpha Beat because my guest today has been Jeremy Osborne. We've been talking about Paul live at the White House. Keep listening to Paul. Play us out then. Please. <laughs>
Um, yeah, it, it really is uh, part of the whole thing, I think, of being a musician. This idea of uh, the mystery of it, you don't quite, you know, you have to pinch yourself quite often. Um, some of the songs you write, you don't know where they come from. You don't know quite how it happens. And there's no amount of training can really teach you how to do it. You're just lucky when they come, you know, and it's, it's a very mysterious, magical process, as anyone who's written a song knows. Um, and the song we're going to do now to finish this evening is um, a song that came to me in a dream. And so I have to believe in the magic. But I was very lucky because this tune was in my head and I, I woke up and I uh, put some piano chords to it. And um, I went around for weeks asking my friends, asking George Martin, our producer, John and George Harrison, saying, what is this song? You know, it, it must have come from somewhere. I don't know where it came from. And nobody could place it. So in the end, I had to kind of claim it as my own. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's pretty magic. You just wake up one morning and there's this tune in your head that... Um, and then about over 3,000 people go and record it. It's like, you know, the original lyrics to it were, uh, scrambled eggs, oh my baby, I love your legs. But I changed them. It was like this. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday Suddenly, why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something wrong, now I long for yesterday. Yesterday, love was such an Mm-hmm. 